Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 74 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame. The other voice you will soon hear is Matt Feuerstein. But Matt, what we have to talk about, actually, is this is the first Through the Years we've done since CM Punk returned to wrestling, coincidentally, during the time we're covering him when he left wrestling, according to his own words, on uh, AEW Rampage. But... Strangely enough, this is not the first time you and I have talked on a podcast about CM Punk since he were returned to wrestling. Wait, who? We were on, so who? What the C? What the who? who are you you know, uh, Chick Magnet Punk, Charles Montgomery Punk, Batman. Um, but <laughs> I, I, uh, I think uh, we were on uh, our good friend Alan Cunahan's uh, podcast on the Pro Wrestling Torch. Alan, Alan Forel's Pro Wrestling Paradise. Who? And. <laughs> you know he did the show once long episode what if that's all uh, i say the entire episode <laughs> i just ask you questions wasn't uh all about obscure uh jim neidhart gimmicks or, so or, that way it's, it's... or i debut my new gimmick the owl the podcasting <laughs> owl so yeah um we had a great time on alan's show alan had us on to talk about some old matches of sea of punk's career and uh, it, it's a great show, and I would highly recommend that everyone listen. I think we talked for around two hours. But the, the one thing I want to stress is it, it, it is a show – is on the Pro Wrestling Torch premium site, so you would have to have a monthly subscription. I think it is highly worth getting a subscription to get access to uh, all of Alan's archives because Alan is – you know, I think the Pro Wrestling Paradise and before that on the Figure 4 website when he was hosting Dr. Keats Presents, I think he uh, – you know, he has one of the widest ranging podcasts in terms of subjects, I think, of any wrestling podcast on the earth. I, I don't think there are many podcasts that cover as many different subjects with as wide a range of guests as Alan has. I mean, he just had us on that. You have to, you have to reach wide to grab us as guests. And, but I do want to say because wide, of that. Wide, the also, bottom of the barrel, one way or the other. <laughs> get to reach deep, wide and deep. But I, I will say, because it's a pay site, like, I think it, it's highly worth your money to listen to Alan's shows if they're up your alley because I think they're great. And there's he covers so many things, there's going to be something you like. Plus, you get the whole Torch archives, which, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. Obviously, we reference the Torch archives uh, regularly covering this show. But the thing I like to stress is I do not want anyone feeling like they have to listen to the show like, oh, shit, they're covering some Ring of Honor thing that they're not going to talk about here. You know, and I have to. I, I don't want any any regular through the years listeners feel like they they're missing out if they pay for this. It's all matches, other than a match Alan selected, which is from WWE. It's all matches we've covered on through the years, so it's probably pretty similar thoughts. I think it's still worth listening to the show because it's fun and it's worth listening for all of Alan's shows. But if if you guys, you know, I don't want anyone to feel like they have to pay ten bucks because otherwise, like we're covering. Oh, there, there's a secret CM Punk Ring of Honor show match or something that we're only covering for ten bucks. Like we're we're not doing that. But still, it was a great show. It was a lot of fun to be on. That's true. The only thing that any of our listeners are obligated to do is to follow Trevor Dame on Twitter. If you don't hey. if you don't already follow him on Twitter, you are deflating his soaring follower numbers and you sh- you need to stop. It's free. Yes. It's free to follow Trevor Dame on Twitter. That is the deal of the century. No, but seriously, oh. it was a lot of fun being on Alan's show. We're going to have Alan back on this show soon. He's the best. He's the nicest guy. Uh if you don't know Alan Cunahan, um 
first of all, listen to our Death Before Dishonor 2003 episode, but also, like, where have you been for the last 15 years, 16 years? Yes. Come on. But but also, like, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just say, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. God damn it. Um, I feel, I feel, by the way, like, like, I, you know, and knock on wood, and luckily I have, uh, to this point in August of 2021, I have not gotten COVID as far as I know, but, like, you know how they say, like, you can have long COVID even if you've had asymptomatic COVID. I feel like I've ex- I've been experiencing this like brain fog thing that people are talking about. Where like I'm like forgetting names and words. I'm like, oh oh, do I have like I don't know what's going on with me. But like yeah, we we both have that's called getting older. Mm. <laughs> Denial. Well, we that's have- what we also have. Denial. We just have a lot of good things to forget. Oh, I, I remember what I was going to say. I just wanted to say also, we did talk on Alan's show about our thoughts about Punk, you know, Punk's return on Rampage, just so no one feels like, again, that they're missing anything. We didn't say that much, and I think it's we have pretty boring, generic thoughts, which was we thought it was really cool. Like, I don't think we had, like, a lot of insight. I think we have – we'll say there's a little more insight on the Alan show, but, like, again – you know, just because it's such a huge thing, kind of related to our show, I'll just say I think we thought it was cool. Yeah, I mean, I like CM Punk. Uh, I think that's his name, and I, uh, yeah, I uh, I think he's cool, and uh, I thought that his return was cool, and I'm expecting cool things, and I'm also expecting sometimes things that I think are less cool, and then he'll do other things that are cool. So that's as cool as it gets. <laughs> And as always, it's time to plug the feeds. It's the only thing we plug. We do not try and sell you baldness cures or crotch shavers or sheets or stamps. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I love a lot of podcasts that do. The only thing we ask Down you with to capitalism, do, right? Yes, exactly. You know, socialism all the way. This is the most socialist Ring of Honor podcast on the internet. Um, Two anti-social socialists. <laughs> so... Uh, as always, we we have two feeds, actually technically three. If, you, if you're listening to us on the Pro Wrestling Only podcast feed, we have a feed that is just us. That's easier to get to the archives. If you're listening to us on the Through the Years feed, T-H-R-O-H, then – um, you can, there's a pro wrestling only feed, which has us, but a bunch of other great podcasts you should also try checking out. And we are on YouTube, which seems to be growing very slowly, but steadily. People are discovering us on YouTube, which is always a weird kind of thing that gives me a, a, a very small, th- weird thrill. I don't, I, a thrill's too strong a word, but it's just, I see, we get the emails every once in a while with the numbers, and I go, oh, a couple more people are watching on YouTube. That's, and it's not video, it's just a picture and the audio files, but for some reason, you prefer things that way. We have it on YouTube. If you can and, get, if you can get me, Matt Feuerstein, Mayor MGF on Twitter, to have equal the amount of followers as Trevor Dame does on Twitter, we will start posting video on YouTube of this show. That's my that's my promise to you. Never. I, I am at Trevor Dame, and you ha- now have to follow me so that we always stay out of equilibrium, and we never have to do that. But a- anyway, um, that that is the Trevor. That is the safest um, bet <laughs> I, you can ever make. You do not have to worry about a thing. I promise. Trust me, having more followers does not make your life better. If anything, it does the opposite. But So you're telling Matt, me that I have spent the last three months just completely enwrapped in jealousy for no reason? <laughs> yeah, oh, trust me. It, it, the, the Twitter experience has gotten worse, not not better. But um, I will 
so we have a lot of news to cover even before we cover the show because some cool it's not huge news but there were some interesting things i was able to mine from the old wayback machines and and newsletters from the, the the things that happened between the last ring of honor show and this show so we'll start with something from the observer uh dave melter would write dave pros dave prazak not dave prozak that that would be my wrestling um name if i got <laughs> dave prozak uh <laughs> we'd be the um We'd be our tag team name would be the SSRIs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, it's a, da- a Dave Prozac, kill. Dave Prozac, and Matt Fluoxetine. <laughs> and we'd have a kid that would look like Matt Hardy's kid, but we'd call him Paxel. Uh-huh. That's good. Anyway, the possibilities are endless. I don't want to go down that uh, hole. But uh, the, so in the Observer, Dave wrote that Dave Prozac wrote. In his live journal, that he, Danny Daniels, Brad Bradley, and Kevin Harvey have all left IWA Mid South over a number of reasons. He said that B.J. Whitmer was treated unfairly and fired the night before, in combination with money issues and problems with the general direction. "Quote: It's just not a place we're comfortable working anymore." And and. And am sad things have gotten this way, end quote. Prezak, the lead heel manager, who also manages an FIP and Ring of Honor, as well as does commentary on their DVDs, has been with IWA for eight years. Whitmer had been there for five years. IWA's claim is Daniels quit because he wanted more than a $75 payoff for the show, even though paid attendance was just 33 people. They claimed Whitmer refused to lose a tag match teaming with Jimmy Jacobs, the two are current Ring of Honor tag champs, to Vito and Sal Tomaselli, thinking it wouldn't be good for the Ring of Honor tag champs to lose on an indie show. Jacobs had no problem losing. Ian Rotten said when Whitmer refused to do what was asked, he had to set an example for the locker room and pull them off the next th- his next three dates, saying he needed to maintain his authority. Whitmer told him he thought it was something he had to do. Whitmer said he hoped they could work together in the future. So... Yeah, this I, – I read this. I was, thought it was interesting, but obviously the Ring of Honor connection would be like this, Matt. This will not be the the last time in the near future on the show we talk about a Ring of Honor title holder stirring up hot water by telling another major indie that I can't lose do a job for you guys because I'm holding this Ring of Honor title. Now, I don't know if the tag champs were ever – I know the Ring of Honor world champs were generally told in this era, I think, you know – you know, don't lose clean, unprotected while you're world champ. I don't necessarily think the tag champs were, I, I don't know if they were told that. I mean, obviously the story says that Jimmy was fine with it, but it is the, it is something that would come up during this era of, uh, indie wrestling. And it's funny because I don't think that kind of stuff happens anymore. I don't think like there's many or any indies right now where the title is considered prestigious enough or they're, or they're that worried about protecting it where, you know, like the PWG champ can't just do a job somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, like we've talked about a lot, indies are just very different now and maybe, you know, maybe this era will come back something like this. Now that WWE isn't snatching up every indie talent that has, um, that has potential, uh, you know what I mean? Or, um, rights, but, um, but you know the the idea of like this you know like these belts like have long term champions and prestige. Not that like being a PWG champion isn't an honor or anything like that, or like you know Matt Cardona winning the GCW title isn't a big deal, you know. But like it's definitely not the same. Um, I um, just just because ROH felt more like a um, consistent promotion with with angles and like 
you know, not, you know, again, these other promotions have angles, but it's, it's just, I mean, I think everyone listening knows the, knows the difference between the way Indies have been for the past five or six years and the way ROH was in the era that we're covering. Yeah. And, and so now we're going to, we're going to show you the scale of indie wrestling at this time in terms of money, because I got, I have not one, but two more stories that tell you how much wrestlers were asking for on the indies. So we're going for a $75 payday to the other end, because we'll go to another story from the observer in this era. Dave writes, there are reports that Bubba and Devon Dudley are asking for $5,000 a piece for indie dates, which would be a $10,000 fee to get them, which tells me they really don't want to be doing that. <laughs> Spike Dudley's price was said to be $2,500, and he's not going to be getting a lot of takers at that price either. I know Ring of Honor has interest in Spike, but I can't see them paying anything remotely close to $2,500 for him. So, Matt, this is one of those stories where if I had just read ahead, I, I always try and research these shows months ahead because sometimes it gives context to shows even mo- that happened months earlier. But I, this is one where I, I wish I could have caught this because I remember there was a few shows ago where we read an article where they said, oh, you know, Ring of Honor has interest in Spike Dudley. And then we, I openly wanted to, well, why didn't Spike Dudley, you know, work in Ring of Honor then? And clearly, if I had just read this article at that time, we have our answer with a $2,500 asking price. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, sorry, I was on mute. Uh, no, that, no problem. That is definitely the answer. I mean, I mean, what, I mean, what you said, what you read was, was probably true. I mean, they probably set that price that high because they were like, I mean, we don't want to work indies that bad. Like, you know, um, you know, which is fair enough, right? Like, and it's like, you know, we'll do it if we get paid an absurd amount of money. But if we don't get paid an absurd amount of money, it's just not worth it for us. That's fine. Yeah, I think when you're on when you're independent, most wrestlers they have like they have a I want to work every weekend price, and then there's a price you can charge when you want to work like once every month and make a lot, maybe make a lot of money, but you're not, you know, you're not keeping your name out there you're not pounding the pavement like i know when ray was ray mysterio was on his last run of the indies he had a i forget what exactly what it was but it was a very high price but also he didn't want to work that many indie dates so it was a way of kind of self-selecting which was like if i make this price one i'll be getting paid a great sum of money per show but two i'm not i'm you know i'm not at the stage of my life where i want to work every weekend so charging a high price kind of does the work for me of of a few of, of winnowing down the offers you get right um it's funny though because i looked on cages at cage match after this and obviously cage match sometimes that some shows fall through the cracks but like the dudleys you know they pretty quickly go to tna and they mostly work tna and work an occasional indie here or there spike dudley starting at the end of 2005 he works you know, a fair number of indies that I, I was looking at some of these indies and I thought these guys can't be paying him $2,500 a shot. I, Matt, next year he works IWA Mid-South in a random six-man tag. I assume the company that was just haggling with BJ Whitmer over a $75 payout did not pay Spike Dudley $2,500 to work a six-man tag. So I wonder if Ring of Honor couldn't have gotten him. Maybe, you know, there's also sometimes wrestlers come in, they charge a really high price at first and then they quickly realize – you know, I might get a few takers at that, but then if I want to keep working, I'm going to have to lower it. Maybe they could have got him down the road. I, again, think it would have been kind of cool to see Spike Dudley for a show or two, at least in Ring of Honor, but it never happens. Yeah, but also, like, unless you're talking about, like, a major, major, major superstar like a Matt Hardy, ROH wasn't in the uh, in the business, really, of booking, like, these, like, cameo appearances. I guess you, yeah. could, say, I guess you could say Abyss 
was sort of that, right? Like he only was there for a few shows. But generally speaking, if they were bringing a guy in, it was – they were either there to be a special draw, which, you know, no offense to Spike Dudley. I don't know how much of a draw he would have been on his own. But like – or they were trying them out to see if they wanted to book them more. Yeah. And um, finally, Matt, I'm going to end the trilogy here of – Money stories, and this one I think might be my favorite. This is from the TNA section of the Observer News. Dave writes, Matt Bentley, formerly Michael Shane, is no longer with the company. His contract expired this past week, and he evidently didn't want to stay. There are rumors WWE has interest in him, and I guess we'll find out soon enough. He asked for $2,500 per match. He was making between $300 and $500 per match, and eventually came down to $1,500 per match, which would have made him pretty high on the TNA pecking order. Clearly, making demands like that, he either didn't want to stay or felt confident he has a WWE deal waiting for him. I do know that Ring of Honor has no interest in using him because they perceive he thinks he's a bigger star than he is. Which, <laughs> that's a fairly harsh I mean you can picture Gabe saying that and obviously and honestly if he's asking for that much money he does think he's a bigger star than he was at this point um, Michael uh, Shane this is another... sorry go ahead no, finish. oh go on I was no, just gonna... finish. oh go on now, I feel like my, 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 my comment will be better after you finish okay. you say, yeah. I, I was just going to say um, like I looked at his you know career after this too, and if he thought there was a WWE offer, he did not take it or or he did not get it, and you know he eventually goes back to TNA. So I imagine probably not for fifteen hundred dollars a shot. So this was uh, this does sound like a guy who uh, you know he thought more, he thought he had more bargaining power here than he actually did. Uh, yeah, I I mean just thinking back to when we, you know our, when he was in ROH and the shows that we covered with him. He was an interesting case because he seemed like he had a really high upside at the early stages, right? When he was being like the heel in the uh, Texas wrestling crew and feuding with Paul London and stuff. And then as things progressed, his performances got less and less interesting. And it's it's really weird how that happened. And, you know, I, you know, I don't know. You know, I feel like he could have been something. But for some reason, he it took us took an, his performances at least took an odd turn. He was not a bad wrestler at all. I, I don't I, like he's he's the guy that you, you'd be happy to fill out an undercard. I don't think he he, he ever really showed me anything special. But like, yeah, he was decent, but kind of like you said, got less interesting as the Ring of Honor went on. But it's crazy to think if you wanted to book on the if you were an indie promoter and in mid two thousand five at this point in wrestling history, you wanted to book the Dudleys versus Spike Dudley and Matt Bentley, that would have cost you fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> I mean, $15,000. For, no, for a second, you were like, $1,500,000. I was like, that's not even a thing people say. $15,000. You could you could buy a car, a, a shitty car, or book that tag match. Um, hmm. It's a tough choice. <laughs> so another story from The Observer at this time. Uh, the FIP promotion, which is something of a sister promotion to Ring of Honor, also booked by Gabe Sapolsky, ran its most successful weekend to date, drawing 485 fans August 5th in Crystal River, Florida, and a sellout 300 fans August 6th in Bushnell, Florida, based around some Florida indie guys like Antonio Banks, Steve Madison, and the Heartbreak Express, along with the usual Ring of Honor stars like Samoa Joe, Spanky, CM Punk, and Homicide. 
Homicide kept the FIP title with wins over Madison and Tony Mamaluke. Punk beat Ace Steel the first night, but lost to Roderick Strong in the main event the second night. Even though Spanky won't be available much longer, he and Sal Renaro won the FIP tag titles over Jimmy Rave and Fast Eddie Vegas. So I thought that was interesting, one, just because it does show you the difference of, like, FIP's most successful weekend ever was a 485 and a 300 double shot. But also, this was, I, I, I looked at the cards, they, it was a very star-studded in terms of um, FIP. Like, they had a lot of the major Ring of Honor guys there. And it is interesting that, like, it was basically, it almost felt like, you know, it, look at that card, the cards, it was like CM Punk doing his farewell matches that he didn't have room for in Ring of Honor. Like, he gets to wrestle his trainer, a Steel, and he gets to, you know, he wrestles Roderick Strong in Ring of Honor twice, but never puts him over, but does, you know, go out of his way to make him look good in the matches. But in FIP, he does put him over. So, uh, you know, it's kind of like a little bit, I almost, it's like a little extra bit of the CM Punk farewell tour in FIP. Which we will never cover, as mentioned, as we often mention, we will never review FIP on this show. <laughs> so mean. We're so mean. Um, it's interesting, though, that, like, you know, because Gabe, I mean, Gabe is booking both. And Fast Eddie, I, I'm pretty sure, like, we basically are maybe, um, I think actually we already reviewed his last ROH match. And wow. he's winning the tag team titles in FIP. So I wonder how much longer he's going to be in FIP. Well, actually, he had just lost them. The, the story was um, oh, you're right, you're Spanky right, you're and right, you're right, and yeah. Spanky won them. So, so yeah, in so, fact, so maybe guess, that's him getting written out. Yeah, I guess he's pretty much done with all of Gabe's stuff. Man, that's harsh. Yeah. You, when you're done in one, you're done in the other. I, I don't know if that was always true, but I think it was probably true more than once. Um Another story from The Observer. The Observer really carrying the load on the news this time. Uh, while there are reports WWE is interested in Austin Aries as of uh, – is interested in Austin Aries, comma, I missed the comma there. As of the weekend, nobody from WWE had contacted Aries to tell him that. The timing sounds right. Aries' appearance on the TNA pay-per-view without a contract usually would get WWE interested. This is interesting, Matt, I thought, just because we had heard like – a few shows earlier, we had read some other story about, oh, like, Aries, you know, WWE might have had interest in Aries, and there was that point where during Aries' world title run, um, Gabe was hoping that, like, that SmackDown was going to use him on TV, probably for, like, a, a job or something, but, like, just something to get him on TV, and so obviously they had, like, a flirtation with Aries at this point, but nothing ever really comes of it until years and years later. Yeah, when does he finally go to, to WWE? Like, 2014, 2013, something like, something like that? Even after that, maybe? Yeah, so, so, something a long ways down the road, but... uh that brings us to our last story, also from the TNA news section of The Observer. At the August 16th TNA tapings, the wrestlers were all given new rules regarding independent bookings. Because what was, TNA what was, will be what was having... Bill, what was Bill Maher there? <laughs> new no-nos. Um, <laughs> because TNA will be having DVDs distributed at the national chains, including Walmart in September and Best Buy in October, wrestlers are no longer allowed to appear for any indie promotions that have DVDs sold at major chains. They are okay with Ring of Honor or promotions that sell DVDs through mail order or the internet, but if Ring of Honor starts moving to chain sales, then TNA talent will be pulled once again. Talent is not allowed to work on any shows that will air either live or on tape delay on pay-per-view anywhere in North America. So this is one of those problems like Ring of Honor would have. And, and you know, you sometimes people 
talk about this with PWG too. The idea of like when you're the high profile indie that's using talent from other bigger companies, there's almost this thing where they, they'll let you use it, but they, they'll let you use it as long as you don't get too close to competing with them. And you know, I, I feel like even at this time, knowing that there was TNA guys in Ring of Honor, as a fan, I was always kind of like, this could end at any moment because of stories like this. You know, you, you always felt like, you know, if TNA ever thought Ring of Iron was getting a little too big for its britches, they would just say, well, you guys are going to have to choose again. It would eventually end when ROH started doing pay-per-views in 2007, right? Like that's when they kind of had like this is the last straw and that's when they pulled all of the remaining TNA guys, right? I, I think so. Yeah, again, I am the worst guy for memory. That's why I – that's one of the reasons I do the research. So I, everything's new to me, Matt. But <laughs> so that was a pretty loaded news section and now we finally have the show, big show to cover. Redemption took place August 12, 2005 at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds in Dayton, Ohio in front of a reported crowd of 700 fans, which I believe was the highest crowd – the biggest crowd they had ever done in Dayton. Um the the torch road at this time. This is kind of interesting. It kind of shows you where uh, the Ring of Honor roster was at, at this point because you know Spanky. Everyone knew was going back to WWE. Everyone obviously knew Punk was going to WWE. Everyone knew um, that Gibson was going to WWE. So the processing torch road at this time. Ring of Honor has announced that all talent that is advertised for the August shows will appear even if they have WWE contracts. I love that at this point that they had so many key guys or big notable names that were on their way to WWE that they had to like publicly on the website be like, look, they're, they're all going to be here in August. Don't worry that no one's going to no show. They're not jumping in the next week. Like if you come to the Ohio, you know, Chicago double shot, they will be there. It's such a weird lame duck period for ROH. Like it didn't feel so bad at the time, but like looking back, it's not that it's bad, but like looking back, it's like, man, like it's a precarious situation where like so many of your, like three of your like top of the card featured performers are absolutely leaving. And again, it could have been worse because imagine if WWE at this point, if they were more in, I was going to say the modern WWE mindset, but I guess the modern by like two years ago mindset of like, you know, they could have also at this point, just based on the rumors, have signed Samoa Joe and Austin Aries. And imagine if you had all five of those guys jumping at the same time and you had to do this thing where like, hey, like the top third of our roster is all leaving, but they're going to be on the next two shows. Like, Well, well, like we said, would, I mean, if that was the case, like just ROH just wouldn't exist like this. If that was yeah. if you know what I mean? Like if that if, yeah. if ROH, if WWE was in that mindset at that time. Yeah, it would be just completely different scale. Um and we got a lot of live notes on this show, some from uh, reports that were sent into websites at the time, but some that were emailed to us by a couple of our great listeners, and I will reference them during the show as they become applicable. There are some that I'm going to reference right now, right off the bat. So first off, as always, if you have any thoughts on the shows, if you were there live, anything like that, email them at through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H for through. I, uh... Um, I, I can never guarantee that I'm going to use them. Generally, we do, but sometimes we edit. I don't use them if it's just something where I feel like it's kind of just a redundant thought. But I always enjoy reading them. And the only thing I always say with this stuff is if you don't want – we love crediting people on the show. So if you don't – if you don't want us to say your name on the show, just tell us in the email because otherwise I do want to give credit. But for some reason, you just want to do something anonymously. Someone's done that in the past too. That's fine too. You know, if you don't want – if you want to tell us something, you know, 
believe it or not, this has even happened. If you want to tell us something that happened at the show, but you don't want us to even talk about it on the show, you can even do that. Anything. We, we just love the feedback. But this is from one of our great super listeners, one of, one of the top tier through the years listeners. We have referenced him and his emails on the show before. Michael Laney, often going to these Ohio shows. And he had some – Matt, I think these are his best notes yet. So let me go through them. It was, he writes, it was very hot in the building that night, and they sold out of water. It wasn't as hot as the infamous Progress New York City show or the more recent IWTV 100 show, but it was very uncomfortable in the building this night. So first off, I'll just say, and I got some more notes later for referring to that, but basically, Matt, it feels like every report I read of the show, people were talking about how hot the show was. Apparently, there wasn't air conditioning. As Michael says, there was not water available at the show. Um, no water available was, is, is rough. I was at that progress show. Um, they definitely had water available at the very least. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, to show you how crazy this was, I just like referenced the show a few days ago on Twitter to kind of hype people up. And someone, I, and I forgot their Twitter handle, so apologies, but they just referenced that like, that it was like over a hundred degrees that day. And I think they said something like this might've been one of the live reports or it might've been on Twitter that like they had a friend that like had to leave the show cause they got sick uh, I, from the heat. So, so uh, you know, this is a, unfortunately this is something that happens in indie wrestling, not, re, not just recently, but you know, you book smaller buildings, you look build, you book buildings that don't have all the amenities and you book shows in the summer, and sometimes crap like this happens. But not having water available is just—I mean, you would have sold a lot of water. That's not even—that's uh, not even bad just for like fan comfort. That's bad for money. You probably could have sold overpriced waters and made a killing that night. Like, you yeah, know, I mean, they, pro- they probably just underestimated how high the demand would be. Like, I—I I, I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? I don't think like they were intentionally like, yeah, we don't—we don't, we don't want to provide water. Like, that's—that seems yeah, unlikely. Yeah, exactly. So next note from Michael, uh, he wrote, before the show, there was a fan that had a giant thank you punk banner that he was asking fans to sign with their good luck messages. He was going to give this to punk after the show, the show in Chicago the next day. I remember one of the first few signees left the message for punk to watch out for triple H, which was met with a lot of laughter Matt, this, you know, what would have been great is if like the guy, Michael then wrote like, looking back, he looks a lot like an older version of CM Punk. Like it was just like, it was punk time traveling and just right <laughs> himself. He had like a long gray beard, but he was still, he, he had the tattoos. He's wearing like a yeah. Lars H- Hedrickson and the bastards. Although I do, I do have to say, as we see, you definitely do not have to be a time traveler to have suspected that CM Punk <laughs> and Triple H would have clashed behind the scenes. <laughs> Except for that PW Torch article we read a bunch of shows ago yes. where some <laughs> anonymous source said, oh, I think Triple H and CM Punk will be real good friends. Like, oh, no, that, that, that one was not true in a hilarious fashion. Very um, much so, yes. Speaking of hilarious things, another note from Michael, he writes, Low-key came outside before the show started to sell t-shirts to the fans in line. On the rewatch, I caught a fan audibly telling Low-key that he will buy a shirt if Low-key beats Jay Lethal. Low-key's sales tactic was basically what you would expect. He came out with a box of shirts, announced he had shirts for $20, and stoically stood in one spot. After a few minutes, Homicide grabbed a bundle of shirts and started walking through the line, launching into a sales pitch about how they had to raise money to send their kids to college. Homicide by far sold more low-key shirts than low-key that night. I just love the idea of low-key trying to push merch. Like, yeah, if if low-key's not going to break the low-key character, like, just uh, just imagining him like, I've got shirts. 
20 bucks. Yeah, I mean, I will not talk to you. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, there's always been a debate about how good Loki is at selling. <laughs> that is that's an early contender for the zing of the show. We do not make that an award, but if we did, early we, contender. We have so many zings to come. <laughs> then finally, uh, Michael's last. No, I'm going to read at this point. He wrote, "I recall the most recent Ring of Honor DVD release at, at the merch table being Death Before Dishonor three. I think this two month release delay was basically the standard going forward from this point. So that's something we've mentioned in the past, but we don't mention it that often. And it's good to remind people occasionally that like." You know, again, Ring of Honor was only available through mail order product, and the shows came out. You know, a two month delay was better; it was beating like other periods of Ring of Honor history. So, but it, it's always interesting when we talk about like reactions to storylines and stuff. You know, fans are reacting stuff where if it was if, if it hadn't happened like two months or further back, everyone's just reacting based on what they've read online. Yeah, to storylines and things. Yeah, I mean uh, that's absolutely what what they're doing i mean that's luckily roh had a fan base that did that i mean you just you just you just can't keep the uh, momentum going if you're waiting for people to see the dvds um, like we you, you oh i was just gonna say you think about it you know like this is in ohio if they're just getting death before dishonor 3 like that's the show that's the show that starts the summer of punk storyline this is the second last show in the storyline and they've never been to ohio since that that, you know, since that storyline started. And so basically, you know, they have not seen a single chapter of the story and they're, you know, now reacting to the end of it. Yeah. Now, they still were releasing VHS at this point and the VHS tapes would come out a lot quicker than the DVDs. They'd come out maybe like after like three weeks after the show sometimes. But most people didn't want to buy the VHS. The video quality was a lot worse. Um, you know, people held out for the DVDs. Yeah, I remember like, I I never bought the VHS, but I do think I have vague memories of that era. Like there was a couple shows where it was like, man, if I bought this show on VHS, I could see it way earlier. But I never, as much as as big a Ring of Honor fan as I was, I never pulled the trigger on buying a VHS. There were a couple. I, of, there were a couple of shows I got on VHS, um, and I remember kind of regretting it because the video quality was was pretty crappy. Yeah. Um. So that brings us to a couple of live reports that were not sent to us, but were sent to uh, the PW Insider at the time. And then we will start getting to the show, I promise. Uh, first, the greatly named Jason Head wrote to the PW Insider, Hot as hell in the building. After the matches, the wrestlers were mostly going through the curtain and right out the back door to cool down a little. So that's kind of a funny thing to think, just like you, that you as the fans can just see the wrestlers like running outside. You see that? I mean, you, actually, you actually see that at the end of this DVD. Exactly. Like the last image we get is one of the stars of the show walking into the parking lot to presumably cool off. And then a man named Jeremiah Evans wrote into the PW Insider. He wrote, the building was ridiculously hot and they didn't have any water for sale. I had a friend who came with us. She had to leave because the heat was making her so sick to her stomach. So I guess that is the person that I was thinking about earlier. So literally someone, according to this, actually had to leave the show because of the heat. But that brings us to the show. There was two dark matches we didn't see, as we talked about on the last show. Ring of Honor at this point started basically letting the uh, Ring of Honor wrestling school students work matches against each other that were never put on DVD. So this this show's uh, dark matches were Smash Bradley defeats Derek Dempsey, and then Antonio Blanca and Pele Primo defeated Davey Andrews and Shane Hagedorn. Those were your two dark matches. 
And now we get to what we did see. So we open the show on DVD proper with James Gibson outside the building. He asks us to put all the rumors aside for a second and to focus on reality. He's had not one, not two, but three chances to become the Ring of Honor World Champion. Tonight, he gets a fourth chance. He has to be Christopher Daniels, Samoan Joe. I love he always calls him Samoan Joe and CM Punk. Gibson says there's no way in hell he's letting Punk leave his champion and says there's no way he's dropping the ball a fourth time. Matt, um, short little promo. I thought the thing that kind of bugged the, the I, overall, I like the, you know, it's a good classic wrestling storyline. The idea of the guy that's a good wrestler who's winning mid card matches, but he just can't win the big one and he finally gets over the hurdle. That's a good storyline. But the way Gibson framed this, like, there's no, like, just, I, I, I blurt laughed when he said something. He basically said, like, he might have said this word for word, like, there's no way I'm going to blow a fourth chance. Like, it sounded kind of pathetic the way he put it. Like, because it's almost like, you know, imagine if he had said, like, there's no way I'm going to blow an 11th chance. Like, at some point, <laughs> if you stress how many chances you've gotten, it reaches a point from, oh, he's an underdog to, like, Oh, like, why are you getting so many chances? This is, this is kind of set if you do finally win one of them. But overall, I like the general story of this. I just thought kind of the wording, you know, four chances, maybe you don't stress so much. This is your fourth chance. Well, four especially because generally, you know, the concept of three strikes and you're out. And now yeah. he's on his fourth. Um, the other thing I noticed is they're back to the uh, blue uh, hue of the uh, promos, like, you know, where, like, it was, as soon as you see him, like, it, the color is way off. It's, like, tinted blue. But for some reason, the next promo, they have corrected it, and it's not blue. Yeah, that white balance from shooting outside. I've could be, I've become almost blind to it. Like, I notice it, but then I've seen it so often in Ring of Honor shows, I just forget about it within a couple seconds. Well, I'm sure the first shows we've covered for this, I'm sure we probably talked about it for, like, three minutes straight. Like, oh, the white balance just looked awful. And now it's just, like, if something is even, like, moderately visible, I'm like, oh, this is good. Yeah, there are some you know, things I, that by this point in the show we just don't bother mentioning anymore. Um, yeah. Some certain production things – um, the fact that we don't really believe the reported attendance, you know, <laughs> things like that. And that brings us to um, Austin Aries, Roderick Strong, and Matt Seidel also standing outside in their shirtless, which is kind of weird for some reason. I don't know why they're all shirtless. Uh, Aries says when <laughs> there's something about them being outside and only missing their shirts and just. I, I mean, I guess the building was hot. I guess it was a hot day. So you know what? You know what? I'm wrong. I, I needed that con. I need to remember that context. Anyway, Aries says when Generation Next was formed, their objective was to get the top spots in Ring of Honor, and they've accomplished that. But now they're in a war with the Embassy, and they're down a man as Jack Evans is taking off time off due to his reckless style catching up to him. Uh, Aries says they found a new young piece of talent in Matt Seidel. Matt says that he found out the hard way. You need backup in Ring of Honor, and he thinks he's found it. Aries agrees with him and says Seidel will be announced tonight as the newest member of Generation Next. Uh, Matt Seidel's point in this promo, he only had a couple lines to read, but it was definitely almost Jay Lethal-esque in, in that he's trying really hard to have like all be passionate, but it's very forced, and you can tell he's still new at this speaking words on camera thing. I um yeah, and also the, the um so and also the, the stipulation is that Matt Seidel would join Generation Next if they won the match. 
Like that, that was an important point. Um, like, is that something they mentioned in that promo, or is that yes. just on the commentary later? No, they did mention it. Yeah, they sort oh. of said it in a weird way, but like they, they they did they did mention that. I um, but I will say I'm glad they gave promo time for this because like they this is the sort of thing they don't often bother to explain on a promo. They'll just let the commentator sort of fill in all the blanks but you know the fact that they said like jack evans is out we're fighting a new faction we need a new member here's our new member matt seidel he's going to wrestle with us tonight if they if they win he'll join the you know just like getting getting over matt seidel and his relationship with the other guys i think that's like that's the sort of thing like you know you might take for granted in a lot of wrestling companies but roh didn't always commit promo time on a dvd for that and i appreciated that they did it here even if the promo itself wasn't super great and it's a good spot for Matt Seidel, you know, to be, you know, aligned with guys that are already over and get kind of get that endorsement. You, you know, it's a good thing you can do once you've established a stable to basically, you know, once the stable has some kind of overness as a unit to just hopefully lend some of that to someone and put someone new in. But that brings us to the opener of the show, the four corner survival match. Ace Steel defeats Delirious Matt Stryker, Matt Stryker and Ah, uh, god damn it. Dave Prozac and Matt Streichler and St- Sterling Keenan. No, J- no, min- no James in the in, in the announcement tonight. Just Sterling Keenan. Yeah, in 527 when he pinned when uh, Ace pinned Delirious after he hit a gut wrench powerbomb off the second turnbuckle. Again, I'll just mention this even though he's been on Ring of Honor once before and we mentioned this if you don't know, Sterling Keenan is uh or as he would often wrestle as Sterling James Keenan is Corey Graves today, the announcer for uh all sorts of WWE's things. Um, Matt, this was pretty short by the standards of four ways. Uh, you don't guys, you don't usually, some of the guys here, you wouldn't normally expect to be well suited for four ways. How'd you think it turned out? Well, first of all, it's kind of weird to have a show that starts and ends with a four way, right? Um, yeah, but also like, I guess it's sort of what WWE does with like when they have like an elimination chamber show or like a money in the bank or one of those, right? They start and end with the big gimmick match. So this is their version of money in the bank. That's how I see it. Um, no, but ser- <laughs> seriously. Also, isn't it kind of like hard to imagine Corey Graves' voice coming out of Sterling Keenan's mouth, like the version of Sterling Keenan that we saw on the show? Yeah. For people that don't see like, like, Sterling Keenan at this point had like long hair and, you know, he looked like, you know, I, I, I made a tweet showing a spot in this match, a, a few, oh, like in the last week. And I felt a little bad saying it because I said he, you know, he was considered by a lot of people to be a poor man CM Punk. But like in terms of appearance and things, you know, that's, I mean, his reputation, some people did, the, even though that wasn't necessarily fair because they were both wrestling in like the same era. But a lot of people would just say, oh, like that's the worst version of CM Punk because they would just see, long-haired guy with the tats that kind of looked had that body type and yeah it, it's weird thinking that that guy would become one of the main announcers for wwe the voice not just the voice but just to me everything the most like one of the most long-running consistent announcers of the era right like it's uh, amazing but um yeah as far as the match um it was a weird match um it's it's like they they went immediately to the closing stretch where everyone's in the ring without starting with a regular four corners match. Like literally it was just everyone was in the ring doing stuff to each other. It was like a scramble, but like more scrambly than a scramble because they never even pretended to be on the apron. They just like did a bunch of moves to each other and it was kind of messy. Um it was never boring though. I will say that, but it felt to me like a bunch of random shit. 
Um, like, but it was short and it didn't wear out. It's welcome. So that's what I'll say. But I don't think it was good. Like I didn't, I didn't think it was good. I didn't think it was boring. And I think that's the best I can say about it. Like I thought, um, you know, Delirious got over for sure. I think probably offensively a steel looked the best, um, followed by Delirious, um, striker just like i don't know i think he's just his heart was gone from this promotion at this point which you know understandable and um and keenan you know he i mean he never really fit in great in roh and uh you know i don't think he was terrible here but i don't think he did anything i mean he did one funny thing that you posted on twitter which i think you'll mention but as far as like standout performance not really so yeah um random kind of a mess not boring I, I I think you described this match perfectly with not good but not boring. Like like you said, it was basically the ignored tags immediately. I feel like this was four guys trying to have like a crazy let's pack as many spots as we can in like four way that but it's four guys that most of them I don't think are necessarily very well suited to this kind of match. They gamely kind of tried the best they could, but you could tell like there's some spots of guys waiting like a second longer than they should just trying to figure out what's going on. There's like one really ugly botch where uh, Sterling Keenan is uh, holding Matt Stryker. He's about to do like some kind of slamming move and he's waiting for Delirious to do something. And Delirious comes up and it looks like he was trying to give – um uh sterling a hurricane rana while he was holding matt striker and instead like keaton just doesn't move at all so basically it just amounts to delirious like jumping in the air and falling on his back and then keaton just like well i'm just gonna slam striker like i was planning anyway so i don't know exactly how they were supposed what they were trying to do there but it just completely falls apart um and then the spot i mentioned that on twitter would be Corey graves it's funny you know because people Think of him as a poor man, CM Punk. Corey Graves in this match does a go to sleep, you know, before CM Punk ever does it. He just breaks it out in this match, you know. It, it's not a great looking go to sleep, but he does it. And it was kind of, it, it's not on the level of when we saw Nigel McGuinness do the ring post, head slam into the ring post spot years before he'd do it famously against Brian Danielson. But it is one of those cra- kind of crazy things where it's like, wow, that's a weird thing that I completely, I don't think people remember that freaking poor man CM Punk does the go to sleep before real man CM Punk. I wonder how many guys on the indies were trying to do that move at this point. I mean, it is a cool move, but it is one of those moves it feels like it's hard to do right because either you whiff or you hit it too well and legit knee a guy right in his goddamn head. Yeah, you know, to do it where you're hitting him like on the high chest where it looks good but you're not really hurting a guy, I think it's a, a fairly high degree of difficulty move actually because I think – I'm willing to bet you know, maybe this would be different if I watched even more Noah at the time. But because I've watched so much indies and even CM Punk matches, like I would say – I've seen a high proportion of bad go-to-sleeps to, like, good-looking go-to-sleeps. Like, I've seen a lot of average ones and a lot of bad ones, and I've also seen some good ones, but, man, I've seen a lot of the other two. Um, yeah, I mean, even Kenta's go-to-sleep, like, it's not 100% of the time great. Like, it's yeah. usually good. Like, like, don't get me wrong. Like, he's, he's really good at doing that move. But there have been some examples where it's like, yeah, that wasn't the best go-to-sleep. Yeah, it's a move where if you know if you're of the mindset that like a, a finisher should be something you can hit reliably like 99% of the time, I think the go to sleep actually probably isn't shouldn't be your finisher then if that's your mindset because I think even a really talented wrestler is going to have a hard time making that look against every opponent. I'd agree with um, that. I'll. 
also, I thought the ending spot was the best spot, which was Ace Steel doing that uh, gut wrench powerbomb off the second turnbuckle because for a couple seconds, it looked like he was almost going to lose Delirious. It was like scary. It was one of those moves where it's like, oh, shit, is he going to drop him on his head? And then he just powers the guy up and then hits the move. It was, It's one of those moves where it's cool because it almost wasn't cool. It was cool because it was saved from being something scary. And also, I'll just say we – I usually – like to mention this uh it's lenny leonard and prazak doing the commentary for most of the show uh gabe tags in for lenny in the final match or two i think so but for most of the way it's another show where it's mostly lenny and dave we go to uh next on the show christopher daniels outside and at this point you can hear a police siren in the distance and it shuts off midway through the promo but it is really loud at a couple points and i feel bad for daniels because he ends up talking louder than he needs to because he's just conscious of it and he's trying to compensate for how loud the you know the, the siren might um you know overwhelm his voice and it's one of those things where like we've talked about this is another thing we, we we've stopped talking about but ring of honor so often like did they never not have time to reshoot a 90 second promo? Like, did they not have the room on the camera or the time? It, this is like a 90 second promo and half of the promo, it, there's just a blaring like ambulance siren in the background that I just felt so bad. But anyway, I guess they just figured no one would care. Also, yeah, keep in mind. Yeah, this is right across the street from the hospital, this place. So <laughs> that's, I'm sure that's why. But so keep in mind also that I'm not going to describe, you know, when the, the siren stuff, but just imagine that the first half of this promo that Daniels is trying to cut for a major match just has a giant like medical siren in the background. Um, Daniel says his destiny of winning the Ring of Honor title has been thwarted by his history. He talks about the crowning a champion match, the 60-minute Ironman match that was the four-way to crown the first Ring of Honor champion. That's a match he lost. He says, then I got taken out of Ring of Honor by circumstances beyond my control. Um, Daniels talks about that 60-minute draw he just had with CM Punk. And then he says, if Punk thinks he's leaving here with the belt, he's out of his mind. He says, Gibson and Joe are not factors in the equation tonight. It's all about just him and Punk. And Daniel says he'll finally achieve his destiny tonight. And Punk can pray for mercy, but he will not get it. So just a, a simple promo from Daniels. You know, you know, it's interesting. He almost he, he literally says, like, you know, it's like, don't even think about Gibson and Joe. It's not they're not even really part of this. It's just you and me. But they will become a part of this, for, especially for Daniels in the future of this match. Um. Next up, we have Colt Cabana returning from his month in England, defeating Spanky via pinfall in eight minutes, 27 seconds with a bridging roll up. Um, <clears throat> I thought this was slightly above average as a match, but disappointing because I really like both these guys. It was a lot of comedy. And on one sense, I like that because I like, I usually like Colt Cabana's comedy and Colt's usually a guy where he'll give you a bunch of his comedy and then the match will kind of settle down to something serious. So you feel like you got a bet the best of both worlds. This was a match where like they did a lot of comedy and just in the final couple minutes, they were starting to get into the more serious wrestling and then the match ended. And I don't know if that was just because they felt like, you know, Colt had a big match the next night. There was going to be a long match at the end of the show. So they needed to cut some time somewhere, but you know, this match only getting eight minutes was disappointing uh, it, it, because of that and because of all the comedy, it felt kind of strangely kind of slight and inconsequential. There was a, some of the comedy was, you know, funny for us at home, like Colt specifically targeted um, 
Spanky's ass and you and Lenny and and you could tell that Lenny Leonard was starting to get more comfortable announcing here because he was finally like starting to joke a bit with Dave about like oh you know people know Spanky's weakness is his ass and you know talking about Colt working on it and Colt does a uh, tomahawk chop off the apron so goofy stuff like that but it, it was also weird in the sense that like Spanky is about to get a tag title shot on the next show and a world title shot on the show after that. And he's losing a match second from the bottom of the card. That's mostly comedy that features a spot where he gets exhausted from running the ropes. And it was one of those things where I get he's on its way out. So maybe you don't want to give him a lot of wins and, you know, Colt's going to have a big main event the next show. But it was kind of weird to see like just how silly he played this, especially since they weren't playing like Spanky, Nearly as silly on this run as his first run, and but again, it was entertaining but disappointing in my opinion. Would you, do you feel the same way? Or did you just thought, hey, this is like fun comedy? I mean, I feel mostly the same as you. Like it's funny because on on his promos on this night and the one after, they kind of play up the wackiness of Spanky's character a little bit. Like I think mm-hmm. probably to build up to an angle that happens on the next show, like to make it more surprising, probably. But like. Like and he's gonna do a promo in the segment after this, but like, yeah, it's it's obviously it's hard to get invested in a match where there's so much shtick, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Like, but the crowd enjoyed it, you know, and like in that sense, it worked. Um, I enjoyed a lot of it too. Like, you know, the butt work was definitely funny. Like, uh, at least to a point, I and mean, you don't you really don't see that almost ever in a match, um, even right at the beginning, like. They spend a long time at the beginning stalling by cult like making fun of a fan who like who makes fun of him for wearing polka dots. And he's like he yeah. calls over Spanky, he's like, Look, he look at him, that guy, he's so funny, the stupid looking one. You know, like like I don't know if Cult was like gotten to or like he just like really wanted to stall or what, but like he really makes a big deal out of like targeting this fan, and that's even before the match starts. And you could tell right at the beginning that like it's just going to be a comedy match, and you know like you're like the thing is like it was entertaining, but these two really like if they really just wanted to have a match, they're two extremely good wrestlers, right? Yeah, like they could have a very good wrestling match, but as we mentioned a bunch of times. Sometimes in an ROH card, the wrestlers do what's good for the show as a whole, as opposed to what's to doing what is good for their match. And I guess to them, they thought having a more lighthearted, low-key match earlier in the show was better for the show than trying to steal it, if that makes sense. And that's a great point, because it's funny, because the reputation <clears throat> Ring of Honor had at this time... You know, and they would sometimes deserve it and they would have it for, you know, the next few years to come would be like they did too much up and down the car and they burned the fans out and all that stuff. And that was one of the things Adam Pierce was going to change and all that stuff. But the funny thing is, like you just said, if you look at like modern indie wrestling philosophy among like the major indies like PWG and stuff and compare it to this, like Ring of Honor, there was far more undercard matches that were trying to like that were clearly taking like half a step back to not overshadow main events than wrestling, indie wrestling, I would say today, or even mainstream wrestling in a lot of ways today. Yeah, I mean, you did get the occasional ROH undercard match where they where they had a great match, but I will say it's rare to see an ROH undercard match at this in this area where you're like, yeah, they are really doing everything they can to have yeah. an like a, a five star match. Like, I'm not saying it never happens during this era, but it's not it's not common at all. Mm-hmm. 
Um, some other notes from this match, uh, include more of the comedy was like Colt doing dosey dose with the ref and leapfrogging him. So involving the ref and stuff. That's another classic Colt trope. Um, there was something kind of didn't work was more like you were saying, like some of it we could hear, but some of it was clearly they were like doing little saying things that you couldn't hear, which is always one of those things where sometimes that kind of comedy, it's great for the live crowd. But when you're watching at home, if you can't really hear it or or see the fan they're referencing, like sometimes it works, but sometimes it will completely fly over your head. And I think there was a bit of both here. Um, Spanky had a big, big patch of like. Uh, tape on his back and I, I laugh because when he was coming to the ring one fan can, just clearly screams what the hell is wrong with your back and I just thought that was just such a I always love when you get the really like when our fan finds like a moment of silence where they what they say is very clearly audible and uh, for some reason I thought that was just funny um Prazak, when he talks about how Colt was gone in the UK for a month, he says that Colt wrestled 25 matches in 21 days in the UK, which I believe is true because in the UK on those wrestling tours, you could wrestle like every day and twice on Sundays. And so I have no doubt that that's probably true, that he really did wrestle that much. So probably learned a fair bit doing that, even though it was only a month. Learned how to, um, work, learned how to work the butt. Exactly. That's what you learn in the UK, the butt. Um and then also, the last thing is, Prezak actually openly mentions on commentary, I think this is the first time they mentioned this on commentary, that uh, it's no secret that Spanky's on his way back to the WWE and is on limited time here, which will set up the segment we're about to see, in fact, because after the match, Colt Cabana leaves the ring and the crowd chants for Spanky when CM Punk's music hits. Out comes the champ. He's wearing a pink button-up shirt, continuing his, I think, as you mentioned, you think it's purposely ridiculous, like, choices in dress shirts. Of for, course, of for, course it is. When else did he ever dress like that? <laughs> Some fa- I, I tweeted to Punk and said, I di- please, I will pay you $20 if you come out with a pink dress shirt to AEW. He has yet to have answered my wish, but there's still hope. Because um, he wants some, to remain over. <laughs> some fans chant for Punk actually in Dayton. So, you know, as opposed to some shows where he got a lot of boost, the fans here are more split for Punk, especially because they probably realize we're getting close to the end of Punk and Ring of Honor. Um, Spanky gets on the mic and he says Punk is just the guy he wanted to see. He asks Punk to forget about what just happened with his match where he lost with Colt and give him a shot at the Ring of Honor title. A couple of fans at this point actually boo Spanky asking for a shot at the Ring of Honor title and Spanky then tries to like get the crowd to cheer him. Um, Punk asks Spanky if he's been living under a rock. And Spanky says, oh, I've been living in Florida, in Orlando, which I thought was a funny line. Um, Punk says this is his last weekend Ring of Honor, and he'd love to give Spanky a shot. But seeing as how Spanky is going to end up on Velocity and he's going to end up on Raw, he just doesn't see him get, getting a shot. And some fans, you know, there's a woo, and some fans chant heat. And then when they die down, again, we get another one of those great moments where the, dot, the, the, the chants die down, and then you can hear one fan out there say, Velocity! And pa- Spanky at this point gives this this shrug, like it's this incredible shrug and facial reaction where he's basically saying like, yeah, probably, like maybe I'll be, <laughs> like that's where I'm going to go. Like it's not like, no, it's like, yeah, probably. Yeah. And, the, and the crowd, get, that gets a, a nice laugh from the crowd. Um Spanky keeps pleading for Punk to give him a title shot, but Punk just shakes his head no, and Spanky angrily then kind of just stomps away like he's a child having a tantrum. He just walks out of the ring, goes, nuts to you, CM Punk, and walks out of the and ring. And he says, you're a stinker, like like playing up like the goofiness of the character a little bit, like, yeah. you know, like, like that only Spanky talks like that. 
At this point, Punk then starts his own promo. He says, Ring of Honor wouldn't be in Dayton if it wasn't for him. They wanted to pull out of the market, which, by the way, if you listen to through, through the years, you would know that's actually true. There was a point in 2004 where the ticket sales were low enough where Ring of Honor was, you know, Gabe was openly talking to people and saying, like, hey, if the next Dayton show doesn't pick up, we're not going to run here anymore. Punk says, then I carried Samoa Joe's ass for 60 minutes and they had to come back to Dayton. Punk says, it's not Ring of Honor that sells tickets, it's him. He says, not only was Ring of Honor losing its world champion and half of their best tag team, they're losing their trainer, their best commentator, which actually gets a big round of applause when he says that. So is CM Punk saying that he moves the needle? (laughs) It all comes around, Matt. (laughs) And they're losing a guy that doesn't give a damn about any of them. And this gets another round of applause for him saying that. Punk says he built this promotion. Everyone is here on his recommendation, and he's leaving with the belt. That finally gets some booze from the crowd. Punk then poses with the belt as his music plays. So, again, interesting to see that, uh, you know, Punk you know, was getting quite a few cheers on this night, although he would still get some booze if he found the right line. But, I th- again, it was crazy to see that, like, knowing that Spanky gets a world title shot then on, in two shows from now, like, this promo really did make him look like a loser, like – you know, he just lost a match. He's still begging for the, begging for a title shot. Punk basically just laughs him off and then he just walks away and takes it. Like, he really did look at this like a, like a, like a child, quite frankly. The thing is, like, I think a lot of wrestling bookers take the approach, and maybe it's even correct, that if a character does a turn, it sort of refreshes them and some of the stuff that, like, pushed them down before the turn is sort of erased. Um, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because, you know, he turns For heel sure. in the next show is what I'm saying. I, yeah. I'm trying not to spoil it, but, like, why? I don't know. He, he, uh, Specky turns heel on the show after this one. I mean, we do have at least one listener that that, that is watching these shows spread, fresh. But, unfortunately, yes, there, are, there will be spoilers on at times on the show because we are covering a 16-year-old show. Um, next up, we have the Ring of Honor tag title match. B.J. Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs successfully defend the titles, defeating Chad Collier and Nigel McGinnis in 10 minutes, 51 seconds, when Whitmer pins Collier after he and Jimmy hit the combo powerbomb contra code. Uh, you know, this is the start of the second reign for Jimmy Jacobs and B.J. Whitmer, wrestling two wrestlers that are pretty darn good wrestlers. How do you think this turned out as a match? Um, I, I thought it was quick and fast-paced, and I thought it was pretty entertaining. There was... Um there was some sloppiness and there wasn't a lot of time to develop a story, but I thought the action was, was solid. Um, the big news, of course, is that Chad Collier has a mohawk, um, <laughs> which uh, everybody was enamored with. <laughs> and uh, what did you think of the mohawk? Uh, I, I thought it was funny. You know what's funny? Reading The Observer, Dave, you know, usually, you know, because he was just reporting just the facts with Ring of Honor and just from the live reports, Dave actually went out of his way to mention this. I saved this sentence. Dave and the report of this went out of his way to write, Collier is now sporting a mohawk, which doesn't look good since he's got a bald spot. <laughs> I love it. Like that warranted a, a whole sentence in The Observer. All the things, you know, it's like I have to make sure people know. Chad Collier's Mohawk doesn't look good to me, or to the live report, because obviously Dave hadn't seen the show yet. But well, clearly someone in the live report told him, you know, Chad Collier shouldn't have a Mohawk, Dave. Well, you know, Dave's got in trouble over the past few years a few times about commenting on people's appearances, especially women. Um, and, like, it's obviously a big adjustment for him, because he used to do it a lot for mostly no reason. Like, and uh, I think, I mean, not defending him, but, like, 
that was just a thing that people thought was fine to do back then, which is just be like, yeah, I'm going to make a snide comment about the way someone looks, even though it's completely irrelevant to anything that I'm talking about. Um, so it kind of makes sense. Like, it makes sense that he would be someone who gets in trouble for that sort of like body shaming stuff nowadays. You know what I mean? Um, but it's, anyway, the match, like, so you know how sometimes with Whitmer and Jacobs, it seems like Whitmer, like the, the, the dynamic is Whitmer finds Jacobs irritating or sometimes they're like, playful buddies they were definitely in playful buddies mode today like at the very beginning whitmer was uh doing rock paper scissors with jimmy jacobs and like instead of doing rock paper or scissors uh, jacobs put out a huss and whitmer yeah. and 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 i would jacobs was like huss beats rock or something like that and whitmer was like laughing like oh, huss beats rock like whitmer's definitely like on team jacobs now literally but yeah. also in the emotional sense um <laughs> but um yeah as far as the match um you know there's it's it's pretty back and forth honestly and then eventually um Collier uh, works over uh, Jacobs and then Nigel hits an early match rebound Lariat and Whitmer breaks up the pin and they do some double teaming on Whitmer and one th- one fun thing they do is like um one of the things Whitmer does when they team up is Whitmer uses Jacobs as a weapon on the opponents and in this match, the heels were using Jacobs as a weapon against Whitmer, um, which is, um, you know, it's a little bit of a fun turnabout. So I thought that was, um, I thought that was a, 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 a neat little thing that they did in this match. Um, they're doing a lot of like double team stuff, and the ref really doesn't even try to get the match back to one on one. They just spend like a long time in the ring, so it's kind of like the first match in that sense. And I'm and I noticed that on this show, other than maybe one guy, the entire referee crew is different on this show. Like the Midwest referee crew, I think yeah. Todd Sinclair is there, but like their typical referee crew is not. So my my takeaway is these ROH Midwest referees they cannot keep control of a match. That's what I say. Um, tisk tisk, yeah, tisk tisk indeed. Um, at one point, um, Whitmer gets sort of like a mini hot tag, and he he brainbusters uh, Collier. Nigel breaks that up, but Jacobs tags back in pretty quickly, and they they double team uh, Collier. And now Whitmer at this point starts using Jacobs as a weapon again, um, you know, to turn things back around on the heels. Um, but, but the weird part is, whenever the heels use Jacobs as a weapon against Whitmer, Jacobs sold it like he was hurt. But when Whitmer used Jacobs as a weapon against the heels, Jacobs did not sell it like it was hurt. So what is it about that magic touch Whitmer has that he could just throw <laughs> Jacobs into things and people and and he's fine? But if someone else does it, he doesn't feel good. It's it's a weird. It's like almost like a magical, like maybe they have like a pendant or something that I don't know. I'm just thinking about a video game now. Um, so, but at one point, Whitmer tries to monkey flip Jacobs onto Nigel, but Jacobs totally overshoots it, misses Nigel completely. Like it's not even like you know sometimes someone overshoots and they'll get like their arm on it so the announcers yeah. can at least pretend. This is just like completely overshooting it. Um, so that was. Did you notice that Nigel like lifted his leg to try and catch any piece of Jimmy? And he like poor Nigel like he also it looks so dumb. He's like, why would Nigel do that? But he just like pushes his leg up as far <laughs> as he can in the air. Like, come on, I'm gonna try and catch you with my leg. And Jimmy still flies over. Like, just I completely bad. over it. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, it's funny to feel bad about something like this many years later. But yeah, I did too. Um, eventually, um, N- Nigel does the Tower of London. 
on Jacobs and Collier covered Jacobs, who barely gets his foot on the rope. And actually, if you th- he really actually sort of missed the rope, but <laughs> you know, you could tell that the crowd reacts like Collier should have won, so the crowd mm-hmm. thinks so too. But you know, they just sell it like Jacobs got the rope; it's fine. Um, and then um, Collier puts Jacobs on t- on top rope. Whitmer comes from behind, and they hit the contra code power bomb combo for the win. Um, like I said, quick, fast paced, definitely sloppy. Um, so like that keeps it from being a particularly good match. But I did like some of the some of the entertaining like double team and like using Jacobs as a weapon against Whitmer stuff. Um, but like I said, not much story. It was all right. I, I thought this was a second straight, slightly above average match, but disappointing considering that I really like a lot of the talent in this match. Um, <clears throat> I, 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 you, you covered most of the main points. You know, there was those couple big botches with Jimmy basically almost kind of sort of missing a key, the, putting his leg on the ropes on a key near fall and the, the, the monkey flip. I actually, I don't know if I like, I think I disliked the part you talked about. I couldn't tell if I liked or disliked, but I lean towards dislike the thing you talked about where the story of the first half of this match is Nigel and Chad Collier using Jimmy as a weapon against Whitmer and then Whitmer using Jimmy as a weapon against them. Because I, I think the thing that, that makes it n- me not like it is like you were saying, you know, Jimmy is uh, – normally I think that's an interesting tack to take, but Jimmy, you know, he he sells it when he's used as a weapon against BJ, but when he, he's used against as a weapon against the opponents, he's fine. And now you might be able to sell it like, oh, there's a difference, except two of – at least two of the spots that happen in this match, like that each side does, are the exact same spots. Like Jimmy gets thrown into guys, you know, by BJ and one of the guys on his opponents. He gets, you know, s- suplexed onto some somebody else, you know, by, you know, onto BJ, but also to one of his opponents. And yeah, the selling is different for these exact same moves. Well, that's why you gotta, you gotta use the logic that I did. Like they must be wearing some sort of like charm or like pendant (laughs) that makes it so that uh, Jimmy is invincible when BJ is throwing him around. (laughs) BJ Whitmer's got the moon pearl. That's right. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, I, I think the other interesting thing about this match is you can see, I'll be interested to see if they go back on this, but I do feel like in the last couple shows, they've kind of, like you said, they're kind of coalescing around. They're finally deciding, like, our thing is just, we're like the goofy odd couple tag team that gets around. Like the Huss Paper Scissors thing, We I think we've seen that once or twice before, but like, they've, it seems like they've settled on stuff like that of like, well, you know, we're just going to keep doing this. This is going to be our gimmick. Or even, I don't know if they did it on this show, but like the Jimmy coming out with the matching, but oversized um, hoodie that BJ is wearing, like, like, you know, they're, they're coming up with like a shtick that they're going to use show after show. And it's all built around kind of like this comedy odd couple thing, as opposed to there were times earlier on in the run where I think they were kind of hinting at, well, maybe we'll try doing kind of like, they're not quite friends and, you know, thing, but it feels like they're kind of abandoning that. For um, now. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously, I mean, they're abandoning that until they're not abandoning that. And also, Matt, did you notice? I don't know if this was just to facilitate the spots. Did it? You've been noticing recently on a lot of these shows that unless Nigel is working cult, he's still not acting like a heel. I did feel like this was a match where the way he was kind of bullying Jimmy Jacobs early on and being kind of cocky about it, he was acting a little bit like a heel, I would say, for this. I don't know if he was just doing that because it made the Jimmy spots better or if he really was maybe thinking, well, I am actually a heel. I should start acting more like a heel. 
He's, he was acting a little bit more like a heel, like you said. He still wasn't full-on, like, heel Nigel McGuinness. Like, when Nigel really wants to turn up the heel stuff, he really turns it up. And, like, he wasn't really, like, cheating or anything like that, you know? Like, I... Yeah. But definitely more aggressive, you know, more arrogant. So, he's getting there. There was also a spot in this match I thought was funny. Where we had seen this recently on a four-way where it made more sense, where there was that spot where... Um, you know, in a four way, I think it was one of the New York four ways where Jim, James Gibson grabs Azrael and James Gibson was not a legal man, but he jumps in, he grabs Azrael, he builds him from one corner to the other, then he goes back into his corner and tags himself in on Azrael. So he's basically like, you know, hitting a move on Azrael so that he can run in. Well, in this match, BJ does that to his own partner where he gets off the apron into the ring, he builds Jimmy Jacobs into his own corner and then gets back on the apron and tags himself in. And it's funny because if you listen to the crowd, when he builds Jimmy Jacobs, you could hear an audible like, huh? From a few fans. Like they're going, why do you just do that to his partner? Didn't even hit anybody. And then when he tags in, you get like you could hear a few like claps and laughs, like, oh, I get it. But there's this moment where the fans are like, what the fuck did he just do to Jimmy? It's his partner. And um also poor BJ took a beat beating in this match because when Jimmy gets suplexed onto him, it looks like he took it really hard. And then later Chad Collier hits a German suplex on BJ where it looks like BJ almost gets dropped right on his head. So uh, slightly above average match, but a couple brutal looking moments for uh, BJ Whitmer here. Um, we cut to Samoa Joe outside next for an outside promo. As you can, you probably can tell by this point, all of Joe, uh, Punk's opponents tonight get a pre-match promo to kind of build this up. Joe being the last of them. Joe says he devoted 21 months to the Ring of Honor Championship, while in just two months of holding it, Punk has disrespected everything Joe did. Uh, Joe says tonight he takes back the belt and he ends CM Punk. So very quick. Even by Joe's standards, this was a very quick promo. But uh, that brings us to, next up to... Generation next of Austin Aries, Matt Seidel, and Roderick Strong with Daisy Hayes in their corner, defeating the Embassy of Abyss, Alex Shelley, and Jimmy Rave with Prince Nana in their corner in 16 minutes, 59 seconds when Aries pinned Rave after he hit a 450 splash. So the first thing you might notice is Jade Chung is not on the show because this is another one of those things where when Ring of Honor goes to the Midwest, they're not paying for everybody to come out there, which means, like Matt said earlier, you see some different refs, but you also don't see some managers. There's another manager we We'll see an absence for later on in the show. But with uh, Jade Chung, they have a praise say. I think he basically says something that uh, Nana has her in Ghana uh, cleaning every bathroom in the royal palaces. So that's what their their excuse to write her out. Uh, Daisy is just in uh, Generation Nexus corner because she was, uh, I guess, kind of Matt Seidel's manager at this point. And she's holding this giant toy Daisy, which is funny because it's like Generation Next is like a serious stable. And to see Daisy Hayes come out with this giant cartoon Daisy and then Lenny Leonard and like Prezak keep riffing on it throughout the match where like, I think like either, I think Prezak's just saying like, I hear that's like a loaded Daisy. You know, that that could be brutal to get hit with that. But it probably just squirts water. (laughs) <laughs> as far as the match itself, I think this is the first match Abyss ever had in Ring of Honor. They referenced that he was in special – someone referenced that he was in special K before. I don't know well, he was at, he, he was on the battle lines or drawn, and I don't remember if he wrestled or if he just came out and attacked. Um, but yeah, he, was defi- I, I don't, he was definitely on that show. I don't think he was in a match. This is, And I thought this was a pretty darn good match, best match on the show so far. It was on the way to being very good, but I felt like – there's a big chunk in the middle of this match, which is Ares getting beaten down, playing face and peril. And I feel like 
the work is fine there, but it really slows down the match. But I felt like the front part of the match and the end stretch of the match are really fun. This match is always fun, the most fun, when it's just Generation Next on offense. Because Aries, Strong, and Sidel have really fun offense. It's just really fun to see them kind of let loose and just, you know, they're a great team for, like, turning your mind off and just saying, I want to see guys just really quick hit a bunch of fun stuff. They do that kind of thing. Um, Abyss in this match He's used fairly sparingly. He just comes in in these little bursts. And a lot of his offense is actually just kind of generic big man clubbering, like forearms just running and ramming into a guy in the corner. But he's a lot of fun just because Ring of Honor did not have many big men up to this point in their history. And you can tell everyone's just having fun playing off of, like, there's finally a guy they can wrestle and treat like a big man. Like, when Seidel first wrestles him, he's very tentative and trying to avoid him, you know, um... The, the the highlight of the match to me is like late in the match, um, Roderick Strong's trying to uh, German suplex Abyss and he can't. So eventually, Seidel and uh, Ares hit Abyss with drop kicks, and then Ares, I mean Strong is then able to hit Ares with I mean hit Abyss with the German suplex, and Abyss takes a big like bump for the German suplex. So stuff like that, you know, it, it's kind of standard stuff. But when you watch Ring of Honor, like. It's a novelty just because you don't see many like big man spots and everyone playing around a big size difference in a match very often. And yeah, it's a, it's a fun tag. I think these guys will have better tags probably. We'll see in the upcoming months, but this was a decent way to, uh, to start it off, I think. Yeah, I like this match a lot. I think I actually liked it more than you. I would, I would say it was very good. I, um, just it was just a lot of fun, like you know, and and the execution was so good. Um, so one funny thing that I, I, I neglected to mention during the Generation Next promo that was at the beginning of the DVD, um, when Ares was like, you know, we're at war with the embassy, and Nana has been sending troop after troop against us, and I was just like, what? Didn't the feud just start like on the last show? What are you talking <laughs> about? But um, but I guess now the tro- I, the troop is first of all, Abyss has literally replaced Mike um, Cruel. And Fast Eddie. So that's, you know, nothing against those guys. They are talented. Um, but this is an upgrade, certainly in terms yeah. of star power at the time. Um, and so this match felt like a much bigger deal than the other match. And, you know, as much as I was, you know, kind of bummed about Shelley having to turn heel, he does seem to be having a blast in this match. Like, he really seems to be relishing the role. Like, he feels more, he seems like he's more comfortable. Yeah. Being the heel than he was like trying to be like the kind of baby face who was really trying to get people on his side. Um, I also liked that this show is untainted by the Jade Chung angle. Not Jade Chung herself, who has, you know, is good, doing a good job, but the just the grossness and the misogyny of and the violence of that angle. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, like, I, you know, I just thought, like, you know, Shelly, when, like, when you said the match slowed down when Ares was being worked over, and it did, for sure, but I thought Shelly just seemed to be really enjoying working over Ares, um, and I really just appreciated that, um, you know, and they were, like, choking Ares with the Ghani's flag, which I don't remember happening in other matches before, um, I, um... You know, I liked it like Shelly and Rave, like they, they took turns doing bear hugs on Austin Aries because, you know, bear hugs, not the most commonly used move in ROH by a long shot. And I really did think Abyss was very good. I thought like his big moves, you know, really popped the crowd. Um, and, um, I also thought that he did a really good job catching Seidel because Seidel's moonsault, um, um, 
Oh, uh, excuse me. Um, yeah, didn't he do the moonsault onto Abyss? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe um, to the I'm floor wrong. late in the match, right? Yeah, I yeah, think that's what yeah. takes Abyss out of the match. Yeah, basically. Like I thought he did. I thought that was like a really cool spot, and I I thought that you know Strong's offense always looks really good. I thought that Aries was pretty on on this show. So I just thought this match was a lot of fun. Like it, it and and it had a good ending, you know, uh, with um, you know the Seidel hitting the half Nelson backbreaker, and then Aries hitting the 450, which I think would become kind of like their tag team finisher when they were tag team champions. Um, and Seidel has officially joined Generation Next, so it moves the ball forward too. And Seidel would be in Generation X for a long time after this. So I think this match is actually significant, also. But yeah, and the crowd loved it, which you know is. You know, that goes for, uh, you know, that says a lot too. And I do agree that Alex Shelley seems to be having fun. Like, the thing I like about Alex Shelley is he's like another guy where he's not just working the match. Like, he's, he's trying to work his character. Like, there's, there's a point in the match where, like, he sees Nana has the flag and he, he like literally tells Nana like 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 show the flag to everybody like he's actually giving Nana orders like just to make the match better he, like he tells him like you know wave the flag and and Nana ha- waves it but it's kind of all crumpled up <laughs> he doesn't really unfurl it right but stuff like that it's just like you know Shelly is in the moment as a heel he, he he always looks for little things like that which I like um after the match Abyss attacks strong from behind hits him with a torture rack drop uh, Ares comes to Roderick's aid, but he gets hit with a black hole slam. Seidel then comes back in. He hits Abyss with a little bit of offense, but then Abyss just takes control and hits him with an even bigger black hole slam than Ares got hit with. The embassy then pose over Generation Next. They put the boots to them before they leave. And Nana is just screaming with spit flying in his mouth. And he's saying, you know, the embassy, the new embassy lives forever. So clearly, you know, they wanted to get the, the new Generation Next off to a good start with a win, but they also wanted to protect abyss because this is a pretty strong way to kind of make up for losing where they basically had abyss take out all of generation next single-handedly so you know i don't know how long their long-term plans were for abyss we know he's gonna be on some shows on and off for the rest of the year but they you know they they made him look good here in this post-match segment definitely um and it is now intermission time, and backstage, Dave Prezak is joined by two Ring of Honor students. One is Pele Primo. I think the other is Antonio Blanca. I'm not sure. We don't even get to hear what their names are. Prezak acts like he's just going to give them, like, a random interview. So he's like, you know, so what's it like? And then before he can even say their names, Prince Nana interrupts. He has Abyss beat them off, but all the beating up happens off camera. So we hear the the students' moans of pain as Nana just talks about the embassy is the best. And then Alex Shelley tells us that the playing field and the odds just got even. Yeah, I, I like this, although it is so contrived, like the idea that they were really going to do a promo where Prezak was like, so what's it like being in the ROH wrestling school? But I, I do wonder if um, the fact that they were attacking the students, is that because Ares had already taken over the reins of the ROH wrestling school and so like they were attacking Ares students? You know what? I'm not. I never even thought of that, but that's a great. If, if that is like purposeful, that's a great little touch because yeah, he, Ares was the head trainer by this point, so that's a you know that's a that would. Be, I I really hope that was a conscious thing because that's one of those neat little touches if attentions to detail if it was. Yeah. Um, they should have said, said that though. Like Ares yeah, yeah, yeah. Attacking uh, your students. Clear, they do not mention it. Yeah, they never go like, oh, Austin Aries has got to be pissed. That's his students out there. Um. 
Next up, we have, coming back for intermission, Jay Lethal and Loki went to a no contest in 15 minutes, 51 seconds. You don't when say. Lo- <laughs> when Loki shoved the ref, and you would think, oh, should that be a DQ for Loki? Nope, no contest. Uh, Matt, you know, we've seen these guys wrestle a few times now. Uh, this one, it's the same yet different. What did what, you think about this match? I think I like this match a little bit more than the match from uh, Death Before Dishonor, um, but they are not—they're not so different. Um, but um, I did like that in this match, um, Lethal actually storms the ring um, and attacks Loki, which I think Daniels—you know—would have made more sense for him against Punk on the last show uh, than instead of having the slow hour-long match. So I at least like that. Uh, the sad part is there is no Julius Smokes in the Midwest. Um, the other sad, well, this isn't sad, um, but something no- notable. I'm pretty sure this is Loki's first match for, D- for ROH in Dayton, isn't it? I'm not sure. It, it might be. I mean, the crowd was really, they were more into Loki than lethal, even though he's supposed to be the heel. So yeah, well, I, it, it would not surprise you if like this crowd, this was their first chance to see Loki live in Dayton. Right. Yeah. I mean, Loki is a bigger star. So like, at that, especially at the time. Yeah. So it makes, it makes sense. Um, but um, but yeah no I mean like things you know certainly when Loki is on offense things are very slow again um, they do fight on the outside a bit early on um, they um, you know um, lethal does lethal hits a dive uh, Loki uses the ref as a distraction allowing him to drop lethal off the apron into the guardrail. And Lethal hits some really painful – I mean not Lethal. Loki hits some really painful-looking chops. Body slams Lethal on the floor, starts targeting maybe the midsection. Uh, Things, again, then really slow down. But even as things are going very slow, Loki's chops are just continuously brutal. Like after all this time, I'm still like, damn, he's chopping really hard. Um and, you know, every time Lethal has some hope spots, Loki takes back over with a brutal kick, a brutal clothesline, a brutal chop. Um, he goes back to that body scissors, which I think is kind of becoming a signature move for Loki, like just like slowing the match down with a big body scissors in the middle of the match, um, which maybe isn't the most exciting signature move, but <laughs> he is working on uh, Lethal's midsection. Um, but the thing is, like, and I think you would agree with this. When Loki slows things down, he really slows things down. Like, all the moves still have that pop. They look good. They look painful. But he takes a lot of time in between them. Um, like, I think that's what makes the, the match go so slow, is that he's just, like, moving at a snail's pace, then does something that looks really, really cool, and then moves at a snail's pace again. Um which, you know, sometimes it works. Sometimes it could be a little bit too slow for me. Um, this match, I think, had a little bit of both. Um, but, you know, they, they get they get into trading chops. Lethal's chops, I, I have to say, they can hold their own against low keys. Lethal does do pretty good chops. And at a certain point, they end up in a stare down where they trade chops back and forth really quickly. And, and I sort of was wondering, like, I wonder if they were inspired by the uh, Kobashi Kensuke Sasaki match or uh, Kensuke Sasaki match, yeah, in uh, in the Tokyo Dome, which happened like very shortly before this. And I'm sure all these guys saw it. You know what I mean? Um, so like that, like that chop battle. I don't know if it was inspired by that. I mean, it is also a move that these guys do anyway. So I guess it could have not been. Um, 
but you know, Lethal comes back, hits a diving headbutt right to Loki's head, like like right on the head. And I was like, that that can't feel good. Like, I mean, I know they have a way of doing it, but that had to hurt, right? Um, and Lethal goes for the dragon, but Key grabs the referee's shirt to stop himself from going over. Um, which, you know, I mean, it worked. Um, uh, Lethal, does, I mean, Key get, then gets the uh, the Tree of Woe double stomp, which the crowd always goes nuts for that move, especially when it's new in a market. Like, that move is really awesome. And, um, you know, uh, the Loki gets, I mean, the Lethal gets to the bottom rope. Uh, at that point, uh, Lethal goes for the dragon again, and Loki uses his momentum to drive Lethal onto the timekeeper's table, and then Loki goes for a double stomp onto Lethal through the timekeeper's table, but Lethal moves, and Loki just stomps himself right through the table, and he starts limping, and Lethal chops him into the front row, and they're, they're, they're fighting in the crowd, and the you know Le- uh, Key uh, puts Lethal on a chair and chops him out of it, and they're fighting up onto the bleachers, and Loki chops him out of the bleachers, at that point, Loki shoves the referee uh, to, who's trying to get him to stop fighting, and at that point, the referee throws out the match. Now, the thing that I always wonder here, like, when they do this, like, the referee throwing out the match thing, why is Lethal getting the same punishment as Loki? Like, Loki is the one that keeps pushing the ref. Shouldn't he be the one that's disqualified? This is the thing that drives me nuts. Um, but, obviously... Um, they they definitely built up to that finish because they were continually touching the ref and roughing him up, and obviously they're building this whole concept of Loki matches not having good finishes, partially, I'm sure, a shoot, and partially, I'm sure, uh, booking by design. But uh, I did think Lethal showed more fire, um, and Loki, despite the slow pace, did have very good offense. And even though the ending was bullshit, it was a lot more exciting than the bullshit ending in their last match between the table spot and the fight in the crowd. Um, I think the problem is that you knew the bullshit finish was coming the whole time, and it, you know, it came. But I, I still thought the match was was solid. I thought the match was good, but disappointing, which is kind of been the theme for some of these matches for me. Um, well, actually, some of them have been above average or disappointing, but like, uh, it's weird. We love that first low key Jay Lethal match, that one at Midnight Express reunion, I believe. And uh, watching this match, I was trying to think why we've seen these guys wrestle a bunch since then, and nothing's been close. And I was thinking, is it just that they're missing Jay Lethal's mom or what? And then I think what, what I think it's not as good is because. I'm not, none of these matches are move-for-move move exact copies of each other, but they're all kind of telling the same story, which is heel low-key, kind of methodically beating down and controlling the match, and, and Jay Lethal getting these fiery little comebacks. And, you know, low-key, that's a strength of his, and that's a str- and those fiery comebacks are a strength of a Lethal's. But when you work a very similar story in all your matches, um, you're going to compare them to each other. And I, I feel like if they were trying to do something different every time, Maybe it would be more – it's hard to compete against that first one because I keep thinking this is just kind of like telling the same story as that first low-key lethal match and it's never as good at, at I, telling that same story. I also – I don't think it's the exact same story because in that first match, lethal was such an underdog. And like – so the fact that he got anything in 
on Loki who was taunting his mom. Like, it was a big deal, inspirational. At this point, Lethal's a much bigger star, and he's getting to be a little bit more toe-to-toe with Loki, and I think that takes away a little bit of the magic. Like, people expect more from Lethal at this point. So that's really interesting. So you actually think that that, that some of it is like, the more he becomes an equal with Loki, the less interesting it gets. Yeah, now now they have more matches to come, so, you know, it is possible that their last couple matches will be better. Um, we'll see, you know, but I do think that, yeah, I think that it's a little bit less interesting as they are equal. It was, it was, but, it was, it was exciting because the expectations weren't there in that first match. But I also, I think that's a really good point. I also just think, again, I do think as weird as it sounds, Jay Lethal's mom, like that does add something because Absolutely. once you like get, getting the crap beat out of you in front of your mom, like once you remove that, like that's a pretty high emotional place to be at. And then to, to have the other matches, it's like, okay, yeah, Jay Lethal's still getting his butt kicked, but he's not, at least his mom's not in the front row <laughs> yeah. and the opponent's not talking smack to her. Like, it's kind of like you start at the top in a way when you start the feud that way, you know, in terms of just that emotional stake. But, uh, there's still some good action. I, I agree. Low key, you know, we've talked about this time and time again. Heel Loki changes up quite a bit and gets way more methodical. He pairs back a lot of his most exciting offense, except for the double stomps. And I feel like in a match like this, it, it hurt. Like when when he when Loki gets heel like a lot of booze, it, you, it's it's like a worthy trade to pair back things. I feel like it's like this match. I would say Loki probably got sixty to seventy percent of the cheers, and so. It kind of feels. It kind of felt like it was you were getting the worst of both worlds, where he was working very slow and simply and methodically, but he also wasn't getting the booze he was trying to get by working that way. And in fact, there's a key spot in this match where, like you said, you know, part of the story of this match is Key is grabbing the referee to get out of things. So at one point, when you know Lethal's trying to charge at him, he pulls the ref in the way. At another point, when you know he's going to hit, when Lethal's going to hit the dragon suplex, like you mentioned, he grabs the ref, the ref to break it up. But there's a spot in the match, deep, deep in the match, where Key's going to go for like a top rope double stomp, and Lethal pushes the, basically kicks the ref. He basically shoves the ref as he's lying on his back with his feet into the ropes. That causes Key to to lose balance. Now, that should be a kind of triumphant. The babyface finally gives the heel a taste of his own medicine spot because he had been doing crap with the ref before that in the match. But instead, because Loki's like 60 or 70 percent of the fans are on his side and because it stops him from doing like a really cool wrestling move, Lethal gets booed instead of cheered for doing that, which, again, it's one of those things where they're telling a story that's all about Lethal being the face. But on this night, it's kind of thrown off because these fans prefer Loki. And then I thought the end was bad, like you mentioned, where they brawl into the crowd, and then Loki gives the ref one shot, and the ref's like, okay, that does it, and he just marches back into the ring and calls the match off and gives it a no contest. And I realized the point's supposed to be that both guys had touched the ref, so it's one of those things where the ref finally gets fed up and goes, you know what, you've both touched me during this match, so no one gets to win. But And I realized they don't want to give Lethal the big win yet, let alone over a DQ, but it just really felt like they didn't do enough at that point to to justify it being a no an equal no contest and also it was bad because it was just one little shove at that stage of the match and it's funny 
like Key and Lethal were both brawling in the crowd. And the second the ref starts marching back to the ring, Key starts marching back with Lethal towards the ring. And in fact, like he's about to get back in the ring with Lethal when the match is announced as a no contest. So I felt that was bad too, because it was almost like if you announce a no contest, it would have been easier if they just, let's say they kept brawling and they almost like brawled right out of the building. It would have been easy for the ref to say, you know, this match got out of control. I just can't stop it. You know, they're not even in the building anymore. No contest. But instead, he's announcing no contest, like, right as they're about to get back into the ring by their own volition, which made it kind of like, again, it made it feel cheaper than it, than they probably intended it to feel. I felt like, at least. But um, with all that said, you know, there was still, you know, there was good action. Like you said, Loki is good at doing like really brutal beatdowns. There was a moment where when Lethal's in that body scissors, he hits Loki with one really loud punch to the face. Um, there's a cool moment where Key does this move occasionally where he has Lethal up like he's going to hit him with a back suplex. And instead, he just like throws him down face first into the mat. I always think that is cool. Um I did also like how Prezak explained that Julius Smokes wasn't in the Midwest. Did you catch that? Prezak said Julius Smokes is, quote, a wanted man in Ohio, which so for some reason, like the wanted man in Ohio part was funny. And I like that this is already this adds to the canon where um, David already said on a previous show that, you know, he couldn't be in Boston because he like, peed he, on his, Fenway Park. So he's a wanted man in Ohio and not welcome in Boston because he peed on Fenway Park. You know, right. Smokes is up to no good all over the country. But anyway, um, we got a note from one of our listeners, uh, an email from Ronnie LaFollette. And I want to make clear, that's Ronnie, not Donnie. Ronnie said on a previous show, I called him Donnie. It's Ronnie with an R, not Donnie with a D. I blamed it on Donnie B as I blame most things in my life. Um, he wrote, Low Key versus Jay Lethal. I didn't remember this match or any of the undercard until I looked up the results, but I do remember the crowd being pissed when it ended in a no contest. Everyone was just basically like, what the fuck was that? So, yeah, clearly on this night, it was one of those finishes where I guess, you know, it, it, I, I guess about what I would say, what we're going to find out is I think a lot of these unsatisfying finishes, they're partly to protect Loki, but partly because they're supposed to make you want to see Jay Lethal beat Loki so much that, like, the payoff's going to be that final win. We'll see if the payoff is worth the destination, because I remember people thinking the payoff is not worth the destination. We will see. Uh, so after the match, Key and Lethal brawl into the ring when Homicide attacks Lethal from behind. He and Key team up against him when Matt Hardy runs to the ring to a good but not nearly good as good as the, the reaction he got on the last show. Um, a few fans chant, we want Edge. Matt gets on the mic and says, no one wants Edge more than him. There are a few boos. You can even hear one fan trying and failing to start a you sold out chant. Matt says he didn't come here to wrestle some 300-pound greenhorn like Gene Snitsky. He wanted to step in the ring with the baddest ombre in Ring of Honor, and that's Homicide. Matt Hardy says he will not die. The crowd starts chanting for Homicide, who reacts like he doesn't want his cheers, but he starts steps in the ring, and we get our regularly our previously scheduled match, Matt Hardy, wrestles Homicide, and Matt Hardy defeats Homicide via pinfall in 1740 after he uses a roll-up. Now, so, now, let me talk about the Matt Hardy reaction. Yeah, go ahead. Go for it. When Matt Hardy debuted in, uh, in, in ROH at Fate of an Angel, the only WWE appearance that he'd made after the firing was the week before when he did that like crazy like run-in on edge, like where that wasn't supposed to be on camera, and he shouted into the mic, I'm going to see you at Ring of Honor. Um, this was a couple weeks after 
the ridiculous, terrible return that they booked for Matt Hardy. Um, which, if you remember, I mentioned this on um, on that Fate of an Angel show. Matt Hardy, Vince McMahon comes back and he gives this speech about how, you know, I'm for the fans, I'm going to bring back Matt Hardy. And already, even before Matt Hardy walks out, he's fucked at that point. Then Matt Hardy walks out, shakes Vince McMahon's hand, and cuts a pretty bad promo. Not great promo on Edge. The week after that, Edge totally emasculates Matt Hardy by cutting a much better promo on him. And therefore, on this show, Matt Hardy is booed by some of the crowd, and we get chants of We Want Edge. The entire mystique that Matt Hardy had built for himself was gone, and, uh, and the reaction uh, followed suit. I think actually we should talk about the reaction before the match because I have some things I want to say about that too actually. So I, the story of this match, I mean, we'll talk about the match, but I would say the story of the match even within it is the crowd reaction. Um, I would say if the first – if the, Matt Hardy's first Ring of Honor match was like 95-5 for, for cheering – versus booze where yeah there maybe there were a couple hecklers and people didn't like when he some people didn't like that he beat daniels but overall that crowd was really excited to see matt hardy i would say this crowd is probably 50 50 it's it's probably half matt hardy fans including some people that probably just came to the show just to see matt hardy and a lot of people that are not happy and they are jeering him they are saying we want edge they are you know all that stuff and it's funny because something that comes up fairly often in ring of honor at this over up to this point in their history is you know sometimes the fans would would boo guys from the big companies sometimes they wouldn't and sometimes i would see people going why did they do it to some why not others or they would say all oh, these these indie fans they're too cool for it and i think you have to kind of understand where the fans are coming from and i don't always i don't necessarily condone them booing matt hardy or some of their boos but i do think i understand and what i'll say is this goes over some stuff I've said before, but, you know, just to kind of quickly recap, you know, the indies before WCW and ECW died were kind of for guys on their way up and guys on their way down, and everyone accepted that they were not major league professional wrestling. They weren't the top tier. Once, you know, WCW and ECW died and WWE, you know, was more hesitant to hire a lot of young, undersized guys, you had this insane group of talent on the indies and so places like ring of honor for the first time in a long time maybe ever you know the indie the top indies could be home to some of the best wrestlers in the world and some of the best matches and you know you could even argue were the best promotions i would argue ring of Honor was one of the best promotions in the world during this era so much so that we do a podcast about it but at this point i think it happens a little bit these days but not nearly as much it happens so much at this point in history, indie from people in and out of the business was considered a negative term. Like if we, if someone called you or said that match was indie, that meant they thought it was a bad match. If a guy looked indie, it meant they looked sh- like shitty in physical appearance. If that promotion was indie, you know, indie was a derogatory term. And I think a lot of Ring of Honor fans at this point were like, no, Ring of Honor is like not just good for indie. It's good. It's one of the best wrestling promotions. And, you know, there were a lot of people. I, I remember at this time, Matt, there was guys, like, when they would hype up big Ring of Honor matches, you know, some people would try them because Dave gave it five stars in the, in the Observer. I remember reading there would be fans that were just going, I'm not watching a fucking indie show. I don't care how good Dave Meltzer says if it's an, it's an indie. You know, if it's not on TV, it's not good. 
I mean, listen, and, even Meltzer did that stuff. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. he didn't praise ROH matches, but there was always the little bit of like, but if they were on TV and there's polish issues and like stuff like that. So it's, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it, it even ROH's like biggest boosters outside of the indie fan community still had that stigma as uh, attached to like their analysis of ROH. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's something definitely we've, 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 long time through the years, listeners will know we've covered, we, we've had many instances of Dave kind of doing that kind of half compliment, half negative. To matches to involving w. like Brian Danielson, you know, like ridiculous. So basically why this is all, so why is this all, why am I saying all this stuff? Why is it factoring with Matt Hardy? I think you have to understand all that, the landscape of wrestling at that point where Ring of Honor fans, were definitely defensive and protective, sometimes overly protective, and had a chip on their shoulder. But it was because so many people would shit on a legitimately good promotion and legitimately great wrestlers because there was still the stigma. People were still thinking that indie wrestling was like 1991, where it was a home for guys that were either too green to be good enough or, you know, that were so, you know, that used to be good enough but were breaking down or burned all their bridges. Like, for years, it was true that if you were on the indies, it probably meant you weren't good enough to be in a major wrestling promotion. But this is the the era where being an indie and not being in WWE had no real re- reflection on you. I mean, Danielson does not get signed for years. Samoa Joe, WWE wouldn't sign him. All these guys like were some of the best wrestlers in the world of that era. But yet, some people would still treat them like, oh, you know, you're indies, so you're not good enough. So basically, I think fans in Ring of Honor were extremely um, – protective in the sense of if they felt anyone was big timing them in any way in other words if they felt like if a wrestler was not giving full effort if they felt like a wrestler was um, not prioritizing the company or patronizing them they would immediately turn them in unless there are exceptions if a star was super big they could get away with it like i feel like if austin or the rock came into ring of honor 2005 they could have squashed almost anybody and patronized the fans and they would have still been happy to see them and lost their minds but like or like if we look at great muda when he wrestled in ring of honor he probably gave like 50 percent effort but he was such a legend that was enough he did enough to make them happy but i would say anytime they felt like a wrestler was just if, if, if you came into Ring of Honor and you weren't a top star, if you weren't like a Mick Foley level star and you were patronizing the fans or treating them like it wasn't a big deal, they were going to turn on you. And I do not think – Matt Hardy I think gave a good honest effort in all his Ring of Honor matches. I think he said all the right things behind the scenes and in front of the camera. But I do think, Matt, going to your point, by this point – Every fan realized what was going on, which was Matt Hardy was not going to be a regular in Ring of Honor. This was just three shows he had committed to, and he was on his way back to WWE. This was just a side thing. And I think the fans resented – you know, they resented a guy coming in and basically just doing a little stop like this. And, you know, I I think the fans probably felt like they were kind of being used in a way, even though I don't think they necessarily were. They were just kind of a side point in this WWE story, and I think they resented that. And I think they especially were protective of knowing that Matt Hardy was not going to be in there long term. They were really protective of the idea that he was going to get to go over their stars. And again, if you compare this to like the old era of, of indies before like the super indie era when indies were seen as like lesser, if a bit if a mid you know if Doink the Clown came to your indie and squashed your top star, you'd just be happy that Doink was there. You'd be like, yeah, Doink the Clown should squash 
my top, top star because indies are just indies. But the idea that Matt Hardy would come in for three shows and beat top Ring of Honor regulars, I think, pissed a lot of people off. And if you go and watch these two, the, the first two Matt Hardy matches, then I'm going to ask you, Matt, for your thoughts because I know I've been rattling on. But, um, you know, like the Christopher Daniels match, like I said, it was probably like 95 cheers for Matt Hardy. But you do start to hear a few more boos when he beats Daniels. And it's the same here where I would say the crowd is like 50% on Matt Hardy's side, 50% not. But when he beats um, um, Homicide at the end, or actually it's in the final few minutes, when, when they start trading near falls at the end, the crowd comes even more alive because it's like they realize Matt Hardy could beat Homicide or Homicide could beat Matt Hardy. And like they're cheering more for Homicide on his near falls and they're booing a little bit louder for Matt Hardy on his near falls. And I kind of feel like on this night, there was like 50% of the crowd loved Matt Hardy or like 30% of the crowd loved Matt Hardy. And 50% of the crowd hated Matt Hardy. And there was 20% of the crowd that was happy to cheer Matt Hardy until they realized he might win tonight. And then they started to switch at the end of the match. Because I would say the crowd becomes less 50-50 as it gets near to the end. So I think it's – like, do you think I'm right in that? Like, where there are some fans, I feel like there are Ring of Honor fans that either loved him or hate him. But there were fans in the middle who were like, I'm happy to see him here tonight. I don't want him beaten homicide. Because I think there was a bit of a difference as it got late like that. Um, I don't think your analysis is wrong, but I do think that you're underrating how important it is that they just made that WWE booked Matt Hardy's return badly. Like, I think if Matt Hardy was still like being booked like a cool, edgy character, no pun intended, I think I did that last time too, um, <laughs> but um, that he would have been way more cheered here. Like, I, I really do. Like, I, I, I think that like everybody who watches ROH was watching Raw back then. I think Raw was. You know, not great all the time, but it was much more watchable than it is now. <laughs> so everybody saw how shitty Matt Hardy's return was and how much cooler Edge was. And they were like, oh, Matt Hardy isn't the cool one, <laughs> actually. And they treated him like that. I, I know that, like, all the stuff that you said about, like, indie fans being protective and Matt Hardy, you know, going over their guys. I know that's all true. But I really think that WWE um, booking was really fucked Matt Hardy over. Like, I mean, it fucked him over in WWE. And I also think it fucked him over in when he made this, these appearances in ROH. Um, now, when, now, I will say this. It made ROH look like total punks when Prazak was like, there are rumors that Edge called Homicide to put a thought in his head about taking out Matt Hardy. It's like... No, ROH is not the is not the promotion that like continues WWE angles. Come on, don't yeah. do that. But I don't think that was the main source of it. I really don't. Like I don't you know like you know maybe you're right, but like I remember at the time it was just like when Matt Hardy returned and shook Vince's hand, the win was completely taken out of whatever sales was there for months where everyone was so excited for Matt Hardy to come back. I mean, listen, we all just recently, if you're listening to this one, it's a new watch CM Punk's return. Now, I'm not saying that Matt Hardy's return would have been the equivalent for that, but Matt Hardy was a really big star, and people were really into the idea of him between March and July of 2005. Like, just really into the idea of him. Then the reality of him, they were not so into. And, you know, part of it was him, but part of it was terrible booking. And I think this was just a continuation of that. The reaction was a continuation of that. Like you said, he still had a lot of cheers because he is Matt Hardy. He's still a big star. But I I think that he was completely 
screwed over by the way the WWE booked him. I think you're probably right that I am underrating that aspect of it. I think you did a good time like stating your case and you've kind of bold, gotten me closer to your end of the spectrum. What, one thing I will say I want to make clear though is when I talk about like the fans' reactions to some of these wrestlers through, through the years, no pun intended, um, I'm not necessarily always defending the fans. Like, you know, in the one way, fans can do whatever they want in terms of cheering and booing. You know, you buy a ticket, you get to react how you want. I do think sometimes the fans were overprotective and kind of petulant and, and, and maybe did not give people as much of a chance as they should have. And even in a case like this, you could argue they were too hard on Matt Hardy. But I, I will say at least, I just wanted to talk about that because I can at least explain. I think even when I don't agree with the fans always when they do rashes like this, when it comes to this era, I understand because of the reasons I mentioned. I, I, I understand why they're defensive and always kind of quicker to attack the big name that's coming in and, and more. I think that's the reason why, Matt, like how many times during this era, I don't know if you remember, but we, we've we've read it off on three years a few a few times where like when a new big star from some promotion would come in gabe would always have something written on the ring of honor newswire and said on commentary where like they've been watching ring of honor dvds and they're big fans and i think part of that was to try to head off reactions like this to where it was kind of like it was basically gabe saying you know they, they like this company that they're not you know they're not big time in us you know they know they get it quote unquote you know don't boo them when they come here you know, they're not just here because we're paying the money and whether that's true or not, you know, but I think because they want to insulate from that idea that they're just treating this like another stop. They don't really give a shit. You know, they're going to give half effort. Um, as far as the match, I thought it was a good match. I thought it was probably a similar to the quality of the Daniels one. I would say like a three and a half star match, maybe, maybe three and a quarter, three and a half. It, 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 uh, it's not a absolute barn burner, but I felt like both guys gave good effort. It, it's one of those Matt Hardy matches where at times you go, oh, this is really solidly constructed, but kind of not thrilling. But then those final few minutes, maybe again, because the crowd really got into those near falls, you start going, man, this is really good. Like, Again, talking about things that fans might have just seen, I feel like Matt Hardy just had a match like this kind of with Orange Cassidy on a Dynamite where at first you go in, there's a bunch of comedy and this match didn't have comedy, but you go, oh, this match, it's like, God, why are we seeing this much of Matt Hardy? And then by the end, you're going, that's a pretty good match, actually. That's uh, that's pretty fun. And um, I thought this was a match like that. There's not really a story to it. There are a couple nice psychology touches where, like, Matt Hardy just does very good, simple psychology things. Like, when, when Homicide has the advantage on the outside, Matt Hardy finds a good way to get the advantage where he, he gets rolled in the ring. And when when um, Homicide goes to step in the ring himself, Matt Hardy attacks him when he's in the ropes. And that's how he gets the momentum back and it's things like that where it's really tiny things. But it's the difference between being, like, a wrestler who just – Decides it's my turn to go on offense, and a wrestler who's like, I can find a like good storyline reason in the flow of the match. Why all of a sudden I switch things around? Um, you know, there's little things like Homicide does a big tilt a whirl, head scissors on Hardy early, and then when he tries to go for it again, uh, Hardy just does this and turns into like this slamming move where he just slams him down. So like good learn psychology from that. And then the end of the match, it's one of those endings where it is very similar to the Daniels match, the Matt Hardy-Daniels match, where it's kind of smart and it's kind of not, not smart, where it's um, 
uh, Loki comes to the ring to give Homicide a chain, and that play, and then and then Jay Lethal comes to the ring and he stops uh, Homicide from getting his hands on the chain. They get into a big tug of war, and while they're in the tug of war, Matt Hardy sneaks up behind Homicide. He rolls him up and gets the win. And in one sense, it's a good smart finish because it protects Homicide, and um, it also plays off the recent history where Homicide, I believe, pinned Lethal in a tag match when he hit him with a chain. So it plays off of that. It continues the Lethal Rottweilers feud. All of that but on the other hand it's also a complete kind of repeat of that of, of, of the finish of the daniels match of like oh we're giving when we have to give hardy these wins we're giving him these protected wins that the crowd is still booing anyway they're not letting him off the hook but and it's very much a repeat but at the same time and, I, and also i don't so don't think it really helped lethal on this night because i don't think he really got the rub from matt hardy when it was like the crowd was already against lethal in the low key match not against against, but they were more for low key than him. And now he's aligning himself with a guy that I also think this crowd's half against. But overall, I thought the match was good, not great. Yeah, I, I liked the match. I, um, you know, I might have even liked it very slightly more than you, um, but like pretty much, pretty much on the same level. I, um, I thought the crowd was excellent. Like I thought they really kept the match going, even during the slow parts. You know, I thought that they made it seem like a big deal match. Um, one thing that I really liked about the match is that, like, even before the near fall, you know, false finish sec- section of the match, they were going for covers a lot. Like, it made the match feel really competitive. Like, they really wanted to win. Like, you know, just every little thing, um, they they would they would go for a cover, and like it, it felt like a pretty a good struggle in that sense. Um, there was one spot um, pretty early where it looked almost like. Like there was a miscommunication like that some people in the crowd were pretty happy to jump on, by the way. Like Hardy was running the ropes and Homicide tried to do a drop toehold and like it didn't work, but they eventually struggle into Homicide getting Hardy down into like a leg lock. Yeah. And I think they redid that spot. Like it wasn't as obvious as some other reruns of spots, but like basically um, – they do the drop toe hold a few like a little bit later and Hardy goes to the floor and that's when Homicide does the Tope con Hilo. And obviously the Tope con Hilo is a big spot in a homicide match, so they had to get him back to that position. But did you notice that? Like did you think that was a repeat of a spot? I, I did. I, I did think there was a couple of moments in the match like that where they were not quite on the same page, but they were both talented enough that it never like completely fell apart yeah. it's enough to be noticeable but not not enough where you where you should really rail on it i would say yeah yeah as, it was, as a it fan. Was, and enough to, enough to be noticeable and but like if you're really like analyzing it but also enough to be like you cannot notice it that they were like repeating the spot you know like you yeah. can, you see the botch but you don't realize they just they run they run it back i also thought it was interesting like because homicide did a flying headbutt uh so how many shows do you have two matches in a row with flying headbutts um but uh, you know that's that's all right, I suppose. Um, but yeah, no, I, the, I, I thought that the the near falls near the end were were good. Like the crowd was going nuts for him, like you said. You know they cared about who would win. The finish, like you said, though, I do feel like it was an annoying political compromise. And yeah. um, you know, annoying political compromises are annoying. But no, this was a good match, and I, and I I really do agree with you. It's very similar to the quality of the Daniels match. I think Matt Hardy had like a level that he was at in ROH, and I think it was honestly for me it was good enough. It wasn't gonna like change the world or like you know blow anybody's minds or be like Matt Hardy is a revelation in ROH, like you know like a James Gibson or something. But 
it was a definitely up to snuff for an uh, for an undercard ROH match. Yeah, um, I also think uh, if if our tag team isn't name isn't SSRI, it should be annoying political compromise. I think we should be like the <laughs> new three three minute warning, but it's that someone say annoying political compromise, and then we well, you up. know, this day and age with the parties not working together, <laughs> we would take even an annoying political compromise. Am I right? Your voice almost turned into Dennis Miller for a second. Oh, I my God. That. Don't say that. A <laughs> um, couple other notes I noticed. We've mentioned now life. Bill Maher and Dennis Miller on this show. We're very like, young and very <laughs> – Yeah, definitely, definitely, like, if you're going to cancel us for anything, make it that. Um there are a couple other known moments I liked in the match. Uh, there's on one clean break, Matt Hardy does a clean break with Homicide, and Homicide just yells to the fans, sportsmanship. And I just, I thought, like, Homicide being like that, I thought was just funny. Um, Matt Hardy also, did you notice that Matt Hardy had these really long arm pads that seemed to be way too big for his arms, and they kept falling down, and then, like, in the middle of the match, he eventually just, like, fuck this, and he just, like, throws them away. Probably one of those, probably like, one of those deals where something went missing and he had to borrow it from somebody else. Yeah, Abyss loaned him some arm pads. Oh, I was going to say the same too thing. Big. Damn. Yeah. The, I mean, um, it makes sense. He's the only guy that's bigger than him. Yeah, yeah I, I was trying to think, what's a guy on the roster with bigger arms in 2005 Ring of Honor than Matt Hardy? But... Probably only Abyss. Yeah, it was um, only, but Abyss never wore arm pads. Hmm, the plot thickens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would also say um, one thing. I completely agree with you about the the Edge commentary thing was, was cringy about like, oh, you know, Edge might have – there's rumors he might have paid some homicide to take out Matt Hardy. Especially – and Lenny Leonard also adds into it where he goes um, – he says, I'm sure people in Stanford are playing paying close attention to this match. And I was like – if there's one thing I can guarantee, it's that people in Titan Towers were not giving a fuck about the results of Homicide versus Matt Hardy. I but, mean, um, I mean even the bigger issue is, like, that's just not what you want ROH to be doing. Yeah, I mean, like, ROH like, like, like playing up, work. playing up that, like, WWE is important, you know? Yeah, uh, Ring of Honor in jail was not a promotion that was like, oh, WWE looked at us, like, woohoo, you know, Ring of Honor was generally much more of a, we're our thing, they're a completely different thing, we're separate worlds, we're separate goals. And we're better, like, that, but that's important too, like, we're better than them, we do better wrestling, like, I think, like, you want, you still want that, a little bit of, like, defiance. Exactly. Um, And then, but but the, the good part about the commentary was, they did do something that WWE would never do, which is when the crowd was doing fuck em up homicide chants and doing the dueling chants, President actually acknowledges that he was like, you know, some people, are, you know, see this as WWE versus Ring of Honor. You know, like they didn't try to pretend, even though they were trying to sell the whole sh- night that, you know, Matt Hardy, you should cheer this guy. He's a good guy, you know, all this stuff. They also did not you know, ignore the fact that half the crowd was for homicide. You know, they did not try and make up some weird excuse or anything like that. They were just like, no, people view this as WWE versus Ring of Honor. And so people are going to cheer Ring of Honor, some of them, versus WWE. But um, so anyway, The Observer would write about this match. Hardy pinned homicide in Dayton in what was called a three and a half star match. Crowd was split. 
Hardy got a lot of boos, but there were also chants for him. Every time the chants for him would start, people would boo. Hardy backstage had no problem with it, taking the attitude that if the people cheer or boo, it doesn't matter as long as they care. Still, the reaction from his first Ring of Honor appearance a few weeks back and those and these shows was like night and day. In his debut, he was the most over wrestler that ever appeared on a Ring of Honor show. On these shows, he was just another guy on the show. It was painfully clear just, just how just badly... In, just incredible erasure right there, by the way. Exactly. It was painfully clear just how badly WWE has botched his return by having Vince bring him back the way he did. So, first off, you know, Dave, completely in agreement with you, so point for you. I will say, I would not say that Matt Hardy's first appearance was the most over appearance anyone had ever been he like you said not just incredible and i would say not a few other guys it was very loud he was very over but and, and i also quite think frankly i also think he's kind of um like he i think if you read this not only is he kind of overselling his reaction on the first one i think he is underselling his reaction a little bit on this one like yes he had a lot of jeers but he also still had a lot of cheers like it wasn't like the crowd did not care at all for him definitely it was not as much of enthusiasm as the first appearance but he was still a star on this night and getting some of the bigger reactions on the show definitely, there were still like high-pitched girly you know screams from probably from people that, that you normally don't hear on a ring of honor show that clearly probably just like when jeff hardy came came just to see matt hardy tonight uh, it was probably um, like Gabe and some of the other office people. They were doing it just, <laughs> just for like you know, not because that's how they sound, but because you know, for effect. Like, like you know, like let's scream, like let's scream, so it makes it sound like we have a lot of like young girls on the sh- at the show that are really excited to see Matt Hardy. But I'm just saying, there was a couple moments where, like when Matt Hardy would like climb the ropes and stuff, where you would hear like a kind of reaction that was a different audible tone than I've heard since Jeff Hardy at Death Before Dishonor one. You know, where it's like, oh, you realize, oh yeah, these guys really had a sizable female fan base that wasn't coming to Ring of Honor shows that were buying tickets. I think you know when you talk about this crowd being the biggest Dayton had done, you know, part of that might be the punk food, but I think part of it definitely was still. You know, Matt Hardy was probably bringing people to the show that would not have gone to Ring of Honor otherwise. Yeah, I mean, that's why you book him, right? Exactly. Um, and in fact, from the live notes we got sent by Ronnie LaFollette, he writes, um, Matt Hardy versus Homicide. While the match itself was okay, the whole Matt Hardy saga was the big story here. As you guys covered very well, I might add, that's his words, not uh, my, uh, my, I'm not just patting ourselves on the back, in the Fate of an Angel episode. By this time, Matt had already come back to Raw, and everyone knew his situation was partially a work. The crowd turned on him pretty quickly. The irony of the whole crowd turns on Matt Hardy deal was the fact that this was the highest crowd that Ring of Honor ever drew in Dayton. By far, there were at least 30% more people here for this show than any other Dayton show I've ever attended, which is nine shows in total. Before the show started, I saw Gabe and some of the ring crew bringing out more sets of wheeled bleachers because there were so many people, more, so many more people than they expected. Even though the CM Punk angle was still hot, and I think all Ring of Honor fans knew there would be a title change this night, I still believe that Matt Hardy was the reason the attendance was so high that night because there were more women and children in the crowd than usual. So, yeah, again, just going I, – I do think you have to give him a credit for, you know, drawing a record house for them in the city. Um, 
And after the match, the after the match, Matt celebrates on the outside with Jay Lethal, and he's receiving at this point, I would say, more booze than cheers. Next, we get a rare music video recapping the entire summer of punk storyline so far. So you know it's a big deal when you know Ring of Honor in this era went to the trouble of making a, it. It was nothing but just a set of highlights from the storyline set to a little a backing music track, but it was an effort that you know Ring of Honor usually didn't make at this point. So it was a nice touch. It was a very special occasion sort of thing. They they, they did it for the the, uh, Danielson and Homicide Best of Five series, and they did it for the the Punk Rave cage match. And I think that's about all they've done it for, right? Besides this. They only do it for 2005 Midwest Double Shots then. That's right. (laughs) Um, We'll have to see what they do tomorrow night. Um, So... And that brings us to that special match. That is the Ring of Honor World Title Four-Way Elimination Match. James Gibson defeats Christopher Daniels, Samoa Joe, and CM Punk. He becomes the new Ring of Honor World Champion in 50 minutes, 5-0, seconds. Samoa Joe first eliminated Christopher Daniels in 41 minutes, 4 seconds, when he made him, quote-unquote, pass out to the rear naked choke. What actually happened was Daniels was in the choke. He got his foot on the ropes after his arm was felt was lifted and dropped twice by the ref, the ref did not see it. Punk shoves the uh, Daniel's foot off the ropes. His hand goes up a third time, falls a third time. He's eliminated in that sense. Punk then eliminated Samoa Joe via pinfall in 42 minutes, seven seconds with a roll up from behind a roll up. I, I don't know if it was behind. It was just a kind of a weird crappy roll up. And then finally, James Gibson eliminated CM Punk in 50 minutes, 35 seconds when he pinned him after he hit a top rope tiger driver. Matt, I mean, this is one of those matches where like, it's almost like there's a separate quality conversation between like the match quality and just what the event of the match but I guess what did you think about both? This is again we 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 had just seen a sixty minute CM Punk match, you know. Now we're seeing a fifty minute one, you know. And again, I guess it's important to remember too another long match in a very hot building. You know, this harkens back to the days of crowning of champions where they had fans pointed at the ring, not human fans. You know, keeping people cool fans. They didn't have that here, and they had to wrestle for fifty minutes. How do you think they did, considering all of that? I mean, I don't know what you were going to think about this match, but I – it's better than I remember. I'll say that. Like I remember really looking forward to this on DVD and I remember thinking it didn't totally live up to my expectations and so my expectations were a little bit lower watching it now and I thought it was great. Like I thought – I mean like it wasn't perfect and we'll get into some of the flaws but just the way they told the story, the way the crowd went for the ride – the character work in the match, punk in the match, I thought it was a fantastic culmination to this whole deal. Because I didn't, you know, the Summer of Punk angle, I, you know, it was, it's legendary. I don't think it was flawless by a long shot. You know, there are things that I was like, oh, they should have done this differently. It would have been better if this. I, I think that this ending of it was pretty close to perfect. Um, like I know you said, like the like what happens in the match and the quality, you know, can be almost separate. But I, I do think that they're extremely tied together. Um, you know, like this would you'd look at the match completely differently if it wasn't the culmination of this whole storyline. So it's hard for me to separate the two. Um, I will say the first thing that I was hoping when D- Gibson came out, I was like, 
please don't have the Confederate flag trunks. Please don't have the Confederate flag trunks. This is such an iconic moment. Please don't be wearing a Confederate flag during the iconic moment. And he was wearing the Confederate flag trunks. Um, I was sad. Um, meanwhile, you know, unlike the other shows like you mentioned, Punk definitely had a decently large contingent in the crowd yelling, thank you, Punk, at him before the match started. And he doesn't really acknowledge it except once he says, go fuck yourselves. Yeah. Um, but like I like like even at the beginning like there was almost like a like a fight between the three baby faces because they really all wanted to start the match and like it took time for them to decide who would start and Punk was just like chilling on the turnbuckle when that um, when that happened and I was just like that's good stuff and you know if if I the only thing that I would say about it is if I were Punk I just would have not started the match myself make the other guys start it but. Right as I type that, so it starts out as Joe against Punk, which the crowd obviously goes nuts about. Punk immediately tags out to James Gibson before he can even lock up with Joe, which again, really good stuff. And then when Joe is like moving around to lock up with Gibson as Joe gets near Punk, Punk tags himself back in. Which again, really good stuck stuff. And there was even like a Punk's a genius chant that popped up from a couple people at that point. Which I, you know, like Punk was really playing his his psychology really well here. Um, should mention Gabe is on commentary here with Prezak. Um and Gabe says that Punk is here because oh, we were talking on the last show. There was really no hook to explain why Punk would come to this show, as opposed to the last couple where there was. So yeah. Gabe says Punk is here because of his ego, because he wants to end his ROH career in Chicago, beating Colt Cabana, who he has a match scheduled with the night after. So that's the and reason. And that's a good reason. That's yeah. the, the, I wish they had mentioned that on the last show. That's a, that's a good reason. Yeah, Punk should have done a promo about it. Um, yeah. But yeah, that is a good reason. Um, they also, But Gabe also mentions that if the match goes to a 60-minute draw, even if Punk is eliminated, he retains the title, which is an interesting stip. I mean... I guess it makes sense, but it kind of doesn't also at the same time, you know, uh, I don't know. Um, but it is, it, Gabe also announces that Gibson is going back to WWE. So now he's like, he's treating Punk as a monster, but he's still rooting for Gibson, even though he's going to WWE. So that kind of is interesting, but all that out of the way, um, you know, the Punk and Gibson, they wrestle and then Daniel tags himself in and that pisses off Gibson and then Punk and Daniels do like a fast-paced wrestling sequence of reversals, and the crowd loves it. And that's actually something they did not really do in their um, in their 60-minute match. It's like they, they started out with a sequence they didn't even do in the 60 minutes they wrestled against each other the, the show before. And then, of course, whenever Joe tags in, the crowd goes nuts, and Punk tries to roll under the lockup to tag Daniels, and Daniels drops off the apron, and Gibson won't tag either. So... Um, so um, Punk is basically stuck with Joe. I will say this. The early stalling in this match is a lot more entertaining than it was in the 60-minute match against Daniels. Like I thought the stalling was extremely entertaining here. Well, because um, there's a story this time. Yeah. The last time it was stalling, just generic here stalling. This is all about Punk does not want to be in the ring with Samoa Joe. He'll do anything to not be in the ring with that guy. Punk is just really, really good on this show. Like He's just yeah. like really good in this match. The psychology is just on point. Um, and Joe's first offensive move against Punk is like a big back suplex with the dropping Punk on the back of his head. And, um, so that's obviously a good way to start that, you know, that rivalry up again. Um, um, so Joe goes to do a dive on Punk. Punk moves, 
But then Gibson hits like a cannonball on him and throws him back into Joe, almost like a lumberjack match, um, um, only with like good lumberjacks instead of the ones in the Homicide and Danielson match. Um, and, but, but, but a fun part is that when, when Gibson throws Punk in, Punk just rolls past Joe and tags in Daniels and escapes again. So like I am just loving this whole thing. Like I, I just really am find this so entertaining. And then eventually it settles into Joe versus Gibson, and they, the work is solid, but it definitely like it slows down for sure. It's not quite as entertaining um, as the uh, as the stalling part, but it's still good. Um, you know, Joe gets a leg submission and just like pulls Gibson back by the mouth, like tearing at his face. And Joe actually locks in an old school nerve hold for a minute, which is definitely not something you see very often in ROH shows, like trapezius nerve hold. You know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah. Apparently, Gabe also mentions that when Gibson and Daniels are wrestling, it's the first time they ever wrestle. I don't actually think that's true, though. Um, I think they had wrestled at other points. But um, but nevertheless, the, it's the baby faces working on each other, punks getting to rest for a little while on the apron. But then, like, and again, maybe you can argue some of the psychology here doesn't make a lot of sense. He tags himself in against Daniels when Daniels is at a disadvantage. Um but but Gibson tags in and double tees, teams Punk with Daniels, and he just ping-pongs between all the wrestlers hitting him, including Joe, who hits a headbutt from the apron. And so Punk just falls back out to the floor, stalls some more, and then it's Daniels against Punk again. And this is the first time that Gabe notes it's really, really hot in this building, uh, which, as we know, it was. Um, so um, at one point, Daniels whips Punk into the corner and slaps Joe's and slaps Joe in the face which counts as a tag and because Joe is pissed so he has to come in and fight Daniel. So basically Punk tags out by slapping Joe in the face. I'm not sure if that should count as a tag. I don't know. What what's your call on that one, referee? Uh I I kind of think it should I, I think if you touch a wrestler that's on the apron on purpose, it should count as a tag. All right. You know what? If you want to punch a guy on the apron, you tag him and that's the price you pay. All right, fair enough. I'll take it. Um, and then, you know, Punk tags himself back in again to work on Daniels. And uh, yeah, he actually does some, like, Joe trademark moves against Daniels. Like, you know, that the, 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 the combo where where a Joe chops a guy in the back, then kicks him in the front, and then drops a knee on him. Um, so Punk, Punk does that. And it's like they're building to Joe finally getting his hands on Punk for real. But, like, they give it to you, but they don't fully give it to you. Um, um, Punk does that rope submission where he's upside down, like, with Daniels in the ropes. And Joe takes that opportunity to hit a running boot to the upside-down Punk, and the crowd goes nuts for that one. And Gibson once again plays the lumberjack. He throws Punk back in the ring. Um, And then Punk Punk puts Daniels in a bow and arrow. So, like, Punk is busting out stuff you just, like, never see from him in this match. Um... But, you know, Punk and Daniels, they're fighting for a while. And at one point, Punk put, brings Daniels outside, puts him in a chair to set him up for the old lay lay kick. And obviously, Joe is right there. So, like, you know that Joe is going to come and stop him from doing that, 
right? Like, um, mm-hmm. so like, so it's actually good psychology because Punk obviously never intended to actually hit the move, right? He's just doing it to stall some more. Like, basically, Punk sets up Daniels in the chair, and Joe just like saunters over and stands in front of Daniels, and Punk just responds by going back into the ring. So he's just he's stalling, he's he's recharging, and remember, if the match goes sixty, he's still the champion. So he yeah. has a lot of incentive to continue to stall for as much as possible. Um, but Punk and Daniels are fighting each other for a long time, and Gabe says that neither man wants to tag out because of their egos. But Daniels has definitely tried to tag out. Punk just stops him. So that's not exactly true. Um, and, and, at one point, and then Daniels hits the STO. Both guys are down. Uh, and I think everyone in the crowd at this point were like, all right, we want someone else. So Daniel slowly crawls toward Joe and collapses and tags in Gibson, actually. Um, and the crowd seems mildly disappointed that it's Gibson and not Joe. At the, um, but Gibson is a house of fire, and he almost loses Punk on a backdrop, but he gets him over without anything bad happening. Um, and... Uh, one of the early near falls in the match, because there haven't been a lot in the early part, unlike in the homicide match, Gibson gets one with a second rope leg drop, and then he drop kicks Punk onto Joe's side of the ring, and Joe grabs Punk, and Gibson charges, Punk moves, so Joe, um, so Gibson inadvertently knocks Joe to the floor, and then advertently sends Punk to the floor and dives onto him, and then Daniels follows with an Arabian press onto the floor, onto both, and then Joe pops up, like super energetically. The crowd's going nuts because they know he's going to do a dive, and I think this is one of the best Samoa Joe topes ever. Like the way he just like hits all three of them perfectly, and they all fall down perfectly. He hits Punk, um, Daniels, and Gibson. I don't know if you thought that 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 tope was as beautiful as I did, but I thought it was phenomenal. I do, and I'll go one further. I think that's also one of the better camera shots Ring of Honor we've ever seen because the camera is like basically right behind the wrestlers, like in the rampway or whatever. It's like it looks like Joe's like flying directly at you, like in the center of your screen. And so for him to hit it that well, and also for the camera to have like that head-on view, it was like I was just like I don't say this that often, but I was like not only was that cool spot, I was like that's a really cool camera shot, which I don't say that often in Ring of Honor. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It was a really cool camera spot. Like, just like, that's like an iconic shot for ROH, yeah. especially with all the people involved. So now we get to the interesting part of the match. Like, the early part of the match was all set up. So, ba- so now Joe is with Gibson and he sends Gibson into the ring post. Like, so, you know, he's like, you know, leaning over the turnbuckle, the middle turnbuckle, with his head like out by the side of the ring post. And Punk takes the opportunity to just grab a chair and just waffle Gibson in the head. And no one in the crowd saw that coming, and it wasn't really teased. So the crowd, like, ooed at that one. And everyone starts going to check on Gibson, and Gibson is bleeding like crazy. And Gabe says he thinks there's a concussion. And a bunch of refs are out, and they slowly carry, carry Gibson to the back. Um, obviously, we know what set it, what's being set up here, but it still doesn't make it any less dramatic. Um, and finally, we have Joe and Punk in the ring going toe-to-toe, trading strikes. And I will say this. Even though the crowd was very, very, very anxious to see Joe and Punk battle, I do think that the Gibson stuff maybe took a little bit of heat off of Joe and Punk because the heat is now with Gibson. But it was still pretty good. They're exchanging kicks, and Joe's are definitely more impressive than Punk's. Punk, I guess, had not really stepped up his kick game yet. He has to wait till he goes to ECW for that one, I guess. Um but 
you know, they really waited till the 30-minute mark to do that Gibson angle, which I thought was pretty good restraint. You could maybe argue that it was a little bit too long. Maybe the Daniels Punk section went on a little bit longer than it needed to. But I do think the fact that it took, that the match was on for a while before they went there did build the drama a little bit. And Gabe pretty quickly on commentary says he hears that Gibson suffered a concussion. He's going to go to the hospital across the street. And meanwhile, um, Punk is in the ring, hits a Pepsi twist, and a moonsault for two. Now, I did see a recent interview with CM Punk where he said his moonsault sucked. Um, I'm not going to say that because, you know, CM Punk is a person with feelings. But, you know, you can, you know, you could, you know, whatever Punk says, right? Um, (laughs) He does a moonsault for two. And um, then um, Daniels comes in, he hits a, he gets a bunch of two counts, Death Valley Driver, um, Punk uh, moves out of the way of the best moonsault ever. Daniels lands on his feet, hits the welcome to Chicago backdrop. I mean, not backdrop, backbreaker for two. Um, Daniels then eventually comes back. He hits the big best moonsault ever, and the crowd pops big at the kickout, which I'm definitely surprised that they thought that um, Punk was going to be eliminated before the other two. But I guess, you know, there is precedent for that. With uh, the whole Mike Awesome, Taz, Masato, Tanaka, ECW thing. So Yeah, and, I was going to say that's all Paul Hyman trick, isn't it? Yeah. Which is you, you eliminate the champ first so everyone knows for sure they're getting a new champ. Yeah, that's a good point. You're right. Um, but when uh, Joe actually gets the powerbomb for two on Daniels and goes into the STF, the crowd chants, please don't tap. So I was surprised by how into Daniels the crowd was at this point. Um, and then you know Joe does the thing where he turns the STF into the cross face. Daniels makes the bottom rope. Um, you know, they, they exchange a few more things. Um, Daniels gets into the Koji clutch and Joe starts to fade, but he fights to the ropes. Meanwhile, Punk is on the floor, like gasping this whole time. And Dave Prezak says that Punk has had three hungry men going after him this whole time. And I was like, three hungry men. Isn't that the name of a classic Henry Fonda movie? Um, <laughs> Three what? hungry men. That's when I'm eating for dinner. No, no, no. What? Not even one. Oh, it, like oh, the, oh, the like the frozen, night. like the frozen dinners. Oh, yeah. what were you thinking? You get your mind out of the bedroom, Matt Feuerstein. No, I thought you were just literally a cannibal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that's, that's what I was thinking. Um, but um, no, three hungry men. You know, classic um, courtroom drama about what a jury's trying to decide what they're going to eat. Um, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> So um, D- uh, Daniels then goes for the bridging O'Connor roll. Joe grabs him, turns it into the choke. Another please don't tap chant, although a few people are chanting tap at the same time. And uh, Daniels gets his foot on the rope while the ref is lifting his hand, but Punk pushes Daniels' foot off the rope, and Daniels' arm drops and he's eliminated. Um, so that was another clever, like, Punk's an asshole. He's has his foot in, he has his hand in every pot, and he gets Daniels eliminated by cheating. And that's fun. Huge bullshit chant, but now it's down to Joe and Punk one-on-one. Um, but we don't really get it because Punk bites Joe's head, but Daniels pops up and punches Punk. He goes for an enziguri, but Punk moves. Daniel enziguris Joe. Punk lows, uh, low blows Daniels, rolls up Joe and pins him. Definitely a clever sequence. I would have liked to see more Joe versus Punk. I also... You know, you could argue that maybe it doesn't make sense that Joe gets pinned after just an Enzigari and a roll-up. But Punk, he has been pinned by roll-ups that are surprises before, so it does fit with that. 
But it is interesting that they never really delivered a big-time Joe vs. Punk sequence. I will say this, though. Uh, just spoiler for my overall thoughts. I didn't really mind. I think it was fine the way it was, um, especially because the crowd knew what was coming, which was Gibson chant, uh, Joe and Daniels brawl to the floor on the outside. I will say the one thing I was surprised by, Joe does not hit an ole ole kick in this entire match. Which they had plenty of time to do it. Um, so they definitely were not just doing playing the hits, I guess is what I'm saying. They were telling the story they wanted to tell. And all the refs come out to break up Daniels and Joe, and the We Want Gibson chant gets louder and louder, and Gabe teases like Gibson is on the way to the hospital, and only Cabana tomorrow can stop Punk now. As we all know, the Gibson's music hits, and he stumbles back to the ring, and he looks like he rebladed because he's bleeding again, and... He immediate and Punk immediately goes after the cut. They trade low blows. Gabe says Gibson is wrestling with a concussion in the heat while bleeding. And I was like, well, you know, if you put it that way, it sounds bad. <laughs> um, but um, Gibson, he's he's back in. He's he he. So he stumbles into the ring, but then he hits a graceful flying body press. So I'm like, you know, it's very hard to work a match when you're selling a concussion the whole time. And Gibson sort of had to not do it the whole time for the match to be good, so I'll allow it, but, you know, if you really want to be consistent, it doesn't really make sense. Um, but um, Punk really, like, he's punching at Gibson. He even hits some big moves and doesn't cover because he wants to batter Gibson some more. Um, Gibson kicks at Punk's knee, and so Punk just throws Gibson to the floor, um, and Gibson starts chopping away. He hits him in the leg with a chair, Um Punk hits a top rope Hurricane Rana, but Gibson rolls through into the Texas Cloverleaf, and Punk has to crawl all the way across the ring and grab the bottom rope. And at this point, this is one of those matches where this is like a magical sequence because the entire crowd is on their feet here. They are just – they know they're going to see something special. They want to see it. You know, it's one of those things where everyone is on the edge of their seat like what's going to happen even though really deep down it's a foregone conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. Um and Punk hits the Shining Wizard. He covers Gibson. Gibson gets the rope, so Punk turns it right into the Anaconda Vice. The crowd's going nuts. Gibson gets his feet on the ropes again. He hits a crucifix pinning combo for two. Uh, Gibson hits the Tiger Driver. Punk kicks out, and the crowd chants, Fuck you, ref. Like, that's how mad they are that Punk kicked out. But I guess it's not so surprising because crowds are generally mean to Todd Sinclair. Um, Gibson puts Punk on the top rope. Punk tries to go for the Pepsi plunge, but Gibson fights out, goes up top, hits that top rope tiger driver backwards into the ring, covers Punk, and gets the win. Crowd goes nuts. He's running around the ring, just total ecstasy. Spanky's the first in the ring to congratulate him, giving him that Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit moment that he talked about at uh, at New Frontiers. Um other members of the roster follow to celebrate, which I think this is the first time they do that with like everybody coming into the ring to celebrate a, a new champion. A woman comes in the ring, I'm, I'm assuming his wife, which again, yeah. he, he does confirm that later on commentary. Just wonderful moment, like just absolutely spectacularly wonderful moment. One of the best in ROH history so far. I just love the story they told in that match. I mean, you know, you could hear even just in my description, which I tried to be as detailed as possible. The the middle section with Punk and Daniels and some of that stuff, you know, could be, you know, maybe you could say that could have trimmed that off. You know, they, they didn't fully deliver on the Joe versus Punk teases. Um, the, the, the roll up that Punk beat Joe with was maybe not worthy of that pinfall after all the matches where Punk couldn't beat Joe. 
I don't really care about any of that, though. The story was just so epic. Punk was just so good at telling it. By the time Gibson came out, the crowd wanted him to win so badly. And the way he reacted to that finish was so amazing that, you know, this wasn't a five-star match, certainly not. Um, but it was a great match and a really great way to cap this off. I think this is not maybe not the best ROH match so far, 2005, but I to me, very high in the running of what we've seen so far. So... First off, I just want to say that is one of your great match recaps. You you always rise to the occasion on the big long ones, the really well known ones. So like you always are good, but man, like just the detail you went into and peppering your, your thoughts. I thought everyone like give if you're listening to this podcast right now. I don't care where you're. At, I don't care if you're at the grocery store. Give a round of applause to Matt right now because he Thank did you. excellent on that. Thank you. But uh, I will also say you did such a great job describing it. I think this is going to be one of those ones where. You basically laid out the things I liked and disliked about the match, but my opinion is lower just because I think I disliked some of the things you also disliked more. Like, it's not like, like, I, I think this is a good match, but a great moment. And I think you, you, for like, you made the great case that the match and the moment is more intertwined. For me, I, I, for some reason, I just decoupled it a bit. But I think, like, when I go over my criticisms, you basically have already said them. I think it just, they bothered me a little more than they bothered you. But I don't think I'm going to be saying anything you didn't, but hopefully I can add some different thoughts to it. But anyway, um, first off, I, I, I think that my basic thoughts is I love the story of the match, but I think the, the story of the match is mostly told the first few minutes and the back like 10. I, I think the problem is this is a 50-minute match, and the body of the match, the middle, which like you mentioned slows down sometimes, it's really good solid work. But it's – that doesn't have a ton of story to it and it does feel like the four ways I don't like, which are just four guys kind of killing time. And you know, this is a match that probably could have told the same story in 40 minutes or 30 minutes, you know. But – and these guys are all such great wrestlers. You know, the work is never boring but – there's a lot of the work that doesn't feel essential. I would say comparing this to like a match like crowning a champion, that 60 minute Iron Man match, I felt like more of that match felt like it was telling the story, you know, where that's, that felt more like a 60 minute story to me. This feels more like a five minute story up front and a 10 minute story at the end. And then the middle is them trying to give us a long match because, Hey, it's a big main event. But one thing I will say is because this match the stakes are so high. There's an energy that even that middle part of the match has that the average four way doesn't have. Like, you know, this is an important match and the fans are treating it that way. And there's just an energy to even the wrestlers performances where it's, it's, you know, it's completely different than the four ways that are just randomly thrown out in the undercards of shows. Um, another thing I'll say is, I was shocked at how over Christopher Daniels was. He got the biggest reaction, I would say, of Punk's challengers, like a huge reaction. And I think when when Daniels gets eliminated, when he's the first elimination, there's like cr- people in the crowd that are audibly like angry. Because I think some people honestly – and we'll go to the live reports after. I think some people thought that it was going to be Daniels that was going to win this. Maybe they just thought Gibson's leaving. Joe already has a title. This is da- – and Daniels went to a draw before, so this is Daniels' thing. But – I think they were more into him, the idea of him winning than Gibson or even, even Joe. But I think granted, once it's down to Gibson, they're fully on board with Gibson winning. They're, they're going super nuts. But I think during the body of this match, they were kind of expecting and maybe even hoping it was going to be Daniels. So other things about this match, 
Um, I really wish, like you said, I wish there was more Joe exchanges, knowing that this is the last time those two will ever get to wrestle each other in their pro- in their physical primes, and probably looking at where their careers are right now, probably ever. And, you know, they have two, basically two sequences together. And I really wish in a 50-minute match that they had gotten, like, more time to spend with each other because it's just such a special feud. And I get, and I get probably their thoughts of not wanting to, you you can't maybe top what you've done before, but I just wish they had done a bit more. Although I will say their first sequence in this match is one of my, has one of my favorite spots in ring of honor history, which is after all that time punk spend, you, you, you kind of talked about, but after all that time punk spends trying to avoid Joe, he finally is forced to wrestle him. The first move is he puts a headlock on Joe, and you, if you listen, you can hear Punk go, ha-ha! And before he can be finished his ha-ha, Joe fucking suplexes him on, back suplexes him and just kills him. And when you've watched all three of their matches, knowing how the story of those matches was the, was the headlocks, to me that was like the perfect callback of like Joe, was not gonna fucking play his game anymore. I I, I just love that moment. I, it's the ha ha that makes it where he's so triumphant, and then he just gets murdered within a second. That is one of my favorite spots. Um, apart from that, you know, I, I like the story that they told. You know, with the avoiding punk, and I like the story they tell the last ten minutes with the eliminations. I think it, it is something that Gabe loves to do, and that is Gabe's often good at, which is trying to thread multiple stories in a multi-man match like this. You know, he tried to give Joe and, and um, Daniel Daniels both valid reasons to not to get eliminated, so that even though they didn't successfully defeat Punk, they have reasons, and he tries to use it to set up a feud between them organically, which I think he did a good job. I did not like the I like the story the eliminations were told. I did not like the way the eliminations were handled. So the first one, you know, where Daniels has his feet is in the choke. He has his foot on his ropes as the ref is doing the arm lift and drop thing. And then Punk pushes his foot off, you know, when it, so that when, you know, it's over. So, you know, he the ref doesn't catch it. Here's the problem with that. The ref not once, and I went back and looked. You know, Todd Sinclair's the ref for this. He has his back to the ropes. He does not once, before, during, or after the moment Punk pushes Daniel's foot off the ropes, check ever to see if Daniel's foot is on the ropes in the first place. And I realize the timing on that, you'd have to really work it out or have some kind of signal because you can't have him look at right when Punk is doing it. But the fact that, like, it's like, oh, Punk is so dastardly for, for you know, pushing Daniel's foot off the ropes. But it's like Todd Sinclair, Sinclair wouldn't have noticed even if he hadn't because he never looks at the ropes. So that bothered me a little bit. And then the Joe elimination, like you said, I, I like the roll-up finish in a sense because it plays off the classic Joe storyline of Joe's weaknesses roll-ups and he, we've seen him lose to roll-ups a couple times in his Ring of Honor career but what I didn't like is one the roll-up that Punk uses is a really ugly not really tight looking roll-up and two like you said Daniel's in gearing Joe like Joe is such a legend in Ring of Honor, such a tough guy. The idea that all that takes to beat him is an enziguri and a really weak roll-up, even though roll-ups are his weakness. I was a little iffy on that like you were. I was like, I like the roll-up idea. I don't like how they kind of pulled it off. Um, Gibson stuff at the end is great. I get what you're saying about how, you know, he's he's kind of in a difficult situation where he can't sell 
to make the match super exciting, you kind of have to go for it. But, you know, he's also trying to sell a concussion, which he kind of has to kind of ignore. I would have thought it would have been funny. And this is obviously a joke. But um, seeing as how the hospital for Dayton, as we mentioned earlier, is famously across the street, if rather than like Gibson coming there like, oh, he, he, he neglected going to the hospital, I would have liked if he had come out and been like, no, I got my full checkup already. Like, look, I got a prescription. You know, like, I'm all good, everybody. You know, I went the full that were that close. But Instead, they do this whole – they do the match. Great pop at the end. I'll go into the reaction afterwards. But, yeah, I, I thought it's a good match. It's great moments. I thought it was just – too much of the middle was just kind of generic, solid wrestling that wasn't telling the story. But the end, the start, the moments that come afterwards are so great. I, I love all that. A couple other things and – and I agree with you about how perfectly they told the story. And I also think we should give a shout-out to – to not just how the storyline was booked perfectly, but how the the placement of this show and the results were per- booked perfectly. Because Dayton is where um, I think Gibson's first match in Ring of Honor was. And it was where he got that natural standing ovation, which they tried to like artificially recreate a few times. But that was the one where the crowd gave him a standing ovation after the match organically. And he got kind of a little bit choked up and everything. And so to give him the world title back in Dayton, I think is a great touch. And it works out perfectly because the next night, you know, they normally would do at this point, double shots, Dayton in Chicago. And the next night being Chicago for Punk's Farewell, it works out perfectly for both of them. And I love that the title changes on the first half of a dial of a double shot and then punk leaves on the second. Cause for some reason, I just feel like you don't want to leave a lot of time between the title change and punk leaving. But at the same time, I love that by do having it on a double shot this way, this night could be all about Gibson and the next night's all about punk. Like if you try to do it all in one night, the title change and the goodbye, I feel like whoever won the title would get overshadowed this way. You kind of get to have your cake and eat it too, which I thought, so the booking of these two shows in that sense, I think works great. Um, looking at my notes, I just have a couple other things. I thought one thing that was funny was you mentioned when punk, I mean, when Joe put on the nerve hold, well, it was kind of weird to see him do that there. When Joe puts on the nerve hold on Gibson, one fan boos and you can see Joe turn to the head to the, that turn to face that fan. And Joe mouths the word boo. Like, he's kind of like, why would you boo that? And then Joe changes the submission immediately. <laughs> so it was almost like Joe's feelings got hurt by the one fan booing that he put on uh, a nerve hold. I thought it was also interesting, like you were saying, that they early on really tried to – they kept harping on the idea that if this match goes 60, even if Punk's already been eliminated, if there isn't a complete winner by 60 minutes – um the title retains to punk and it felt like they were like gay kept referencing that in the early, in the first 30 minutes because he wanted to try and try and create some drama with that. But it felt like as the match got more exciting in the final 20, he kind of just mentioned it less and less. And, and I feel like if you really wanted to tease that, you would have had to have gone right to like 59 minutes and you would have had to have done time cues announced in the building. Cause I think in the building, no one was worried about this going 60 minutes. But if you listen to the first half an hour of this commentary, Gabe keeps going to it. Like, Oh, you know, like why, like even sometimes when they're just doing like Matt wrestling, he's like, they should pick it up a bit. Cause you know, you know, this could go to a draw, blah, blah, blah. And I also mentioned this on Twitter. Um, you can see how torn the fans are between wanting to boo punk because it's the storyline and how, um, 
and wanting to cheer him because they know he's leaving. Because if you look at the entrance during Punk's ring introduction, during like less than a minute span, the crowd boos, chants him. Then they go, na 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 na, hey hey hey, goodbye. Followed by thank you, Punk. Followed by boos in like one minute. Like they don't know should we cheer this guy? Should we boo this guy? It, it's um. And, oh, and also one other thing. When when Punk when Joe and Daniels fight on the outside after they're both eliminated, starting their feud, you know Joe kicks Daniels on the outside and he gets his leg cut up immediately by the sharp, infamous, infamously sharp Ring of Honor guardrails. So, um, yeah, that that's my thoughts on the match. A, a lot of thoughts, but it's a big long match. So we'll go now to um, let me go to some. We got some notes first. The Observer. Dave writes, the pop at the finish for Gibson winning was huge. I guess they've done a great job with the belt because its fans treat it like a world title and not a meaningless indie belt. See, there's that indie thing. And pop like crazy when it changes. So they've gone from one guy under WWE contract to another. The storyline on Punk was that he kept teasing leaving the company without losing the title. Gibson's storyline is that he refuses to go to WWE because of how important the title is to him, and he won't leave until he loses the title, with the idea the belt is the biggest thing in wrestling and more important than going to WWE. Dave then adds, if only that were true. Dave keeps going, I don't know the exact time frame, but he and Spanky were given about two months, so I'm presuming they'll do the same thing where Gibson holds it until his time is up. The match in Dayton was a four-way involving Punk, Daniels, and Samoa Joe. It had been booked all along for Gibson to be the one to beat Punk, with the tease a few shows back. Before it came to fruition, WWE signed Gibson, but Gabe Sapolsky decided since they gave him two more months not to change the original plan. The match was said to be four stars. Um, Ronnie LaFollette sent us an out note saying main event four way. This match was amazing. It's one of my favorite matches in ring of honor history. The match was great. The crowd was great. Everything just clicked. I brought one of my friends who is at best a casual wrestling fan. He was losing his mind at the end when Gibson came back out and won. I haven't watched it back in almost 15 years, so I don't know how well it will hold up over time. Hopefully it doesn't lose anything. Mike Laney wrote in and told us, the crowd was very pro-Christopher Daniels for the main event. I believe the majority of the crowd thought that Daniels was winning the title to definitively end the Punk-Daniels feud. The feud started in Dayton when Lacey was taken out, and the Daniels injury angle happened in Ohio. It seemed like this was the perfect moment to book in the feud. So this was, um, that's a really interesting note about, for, we had forgotten, like the history of the Daniels feud. Punk feud goes to Ohio. And then Laney also writes, overall, this was a very fun and exhausting night and is arguably the most important show to take place in Dayton, despite the one guy that would undoubtedly talk to me every show about how the Whitmer Necro barbed wire match was the greatest thing in Ring of Honor history. The Gibson title win is the biggest pop I recall hearing in Dayton. However, when I think of the Gibson title win, I can't help but think about the guy that started chanting Chainsaw Charlie during Gibson's title celebration. Why the guy chanted that is a mystery that haunts me to this day. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great thing. Um, maybe he just, maybe he says it in his sleep even. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't really look like Chainsaw Charlie. I mean, they have goatees. That's it. Um, I mean, I didn't, didn't even occur to me that it was because they looked alike. <laughs> so after the after the pinfall we get the celebration gibson immediately springs to his feet and he stumbles backwards falling down again he is so excited uh ref todd sinclair hands him the title and gibson is so happy he's literally running around the inside of the ring holding the title i would say this is truly one of the great performances in wrestling history in terms of selling happiness over winning a title he is just 
fucking ecstatic. It's so he's just so happy. It's part contagious. of it. Is, part of it is undoubtedly because he really felt that way. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Spanky appears in the ring to uh, and Gibson like leaps into his arms, legs around him to hug him. Most of the roster, like you said, Matt, jumps in the ring to join him along with Gibson's wife, who he hugs. Uh, Whitmer hands Gibson a beer and Spanky grabs the mic. He tells him how much everyone here loves him. And, but then he adds, I can't wait for my title shot. And Gibson just laughs and, and hugs him again. Gibson poses, drinks his beer. He toasts some wrestlers before grabbing the mic. A few fans try a chant match of the year even, so that shows you how much some fans enjoyed this match. Um, Gibson says he doesn't have words to describe how the people just made him feel. He calls today the greatest day of his professional wrestling career, more than Starcade, more than WrestleMania, more than being cruiserweight champion, because now he's unlabeled. He's considered by his peers to be the very best wrestler in the world. He thanks the fans, the wrestlers, and Ring of Honor for giving him a chance to redeem his career. Gibson goes to thank Punk, helping him to his feet. Punk had been selling this whole time. The crowd chants for Ring of Honor, and the two shake hands and embrace, with the fans chanting, Thank you, Punk, and please don't go. I feel, like, I feel like every single thing about this post-match celebration breaks kayfabe, because, first of all, the concussion is just gone immediately, mm-hmm. right? And then, of course, he pulls up and hugs the guy who tried to maim him with a chair moments earlier. Yeah, and it goes even further in a minute, but Punk grabs the mic and he tells the fans to hell with Please Don't Go. I want to hear Jamie Gibson's name. And so the crowd listens to Punk and immediately obliges. They go right back to chanting Gibson's name. Gibson screams that the people made him. And then we see him shake um, Ring of Honor owner Kerry Silken's hand. Uh, At this point, Gibson's music plays and and the house lights come back on. And then we see Punk hug Gibson again in the aisleway and Punk at this point appears to be crying. Like it looks like he is overcome with emotion. He's sm- it's like happy tears. He's smiling, but he's, he's crying about every, about, you know, you know, big moment just happened. Uh, we see Gabe Sapolsky, the booker of ring of honor has been standing at the entranceway, probably the whole time watching from the curtain. Uh, Punk goes out of his way as he walks back through the curtain to slap Gabe's hand. Like, fuck, like, like just a moment of like, yeah, we fucking did it. He goes and leans over to high five Gabe. Um, the ca- he walks to the curtain and then the camera follows Gibson as he walks back through the curtain as well. We see some of the wrestlers backstage. Matt Hardy just randomly walks by and he gives a quick congrats to uh, Gibson. Joe is getting his leg cut bandaged up by a woman who looks like just like an average like middle-aged mom, which is kind of adorable to see like big Samoa Joe. Like a woman is putting like 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 someone that looks like could be our mom is like putting a bandage on his boo-boo. But it's funny. And uh, Punk hugs Joe. Joe hugs Gibson, Punk hugs Gibson, and it's clear at this moment, like, Matt, you were talking about the breaking kayfabe. The whole thing kind of had that feeling, but from the moment the house lights came on with Punk doing that second hug, and especially this, it's clear that we're seeing something that, like, this is all 100% real. This is not part of a storyline. This is not scripted. What is this, These the guys curtain are- call? this is like this is guys doing like sometimes after big matches i always wonder like what would it be like to see guys really celebrate after the match like when they're all pumped up and congratulating each other this like you you are seeing it you are seeing the real emotion of these guys they just had a big moment and they are so happy and just like congratulating each other and hugging each other and they're just you can tell they're they're just so pumped and it's like one of the coolest real out of character moments i've ever seen on a wrestling show and 
we can see Dave Prezak and Gibson's wife are looking on and they're just kind of smiling. Prezak's almost kind of awkwardly just standing there like that moment where you're seeing guys having like a really cool emotional personal moment and you're not involved in the moment. So it's kind of awkward that you're just standing there watching it. Like he kind of has that look. I, I kind of sympathized with him. And then Punk walks through the door to the outside, presumably to cool off, which I guess is also some nice little un, um, unintended symbolism of, you know, Punk's going to be leaving one show from now. And that's the end of the show. So what I will say about this whole last part, man, I want your thoughts, but I will say this is one of my favorite – this is one of the most heartwarming moments in Ring of Honor history. I, I'm a big proponent of or, or a defender of – I think a lot of times in modern wrestling, they don't dwell enough – on the big wins and the title changes, because I think part of the one, it makes it seem like a bigger deal, but more than that, I think part of the fun of a big baby face, like title win or just win period is you, it's the celebration. Like you've been cheering this guy on for so long. You want to celebrate with them. You want to revel in it with them. Like I remember a few years ago, my dad passed away in recent years. And one of the things I tried to do to get closer with him in the final years was I would watch baseball with him. He was a big Washington Nationals fan. So whenever I could, I'd, I'd watch a game with him. And I, you know, I wasn't a huge baseball fan, but I became somewhat of a baseball fan. And the one year in his final years, when the Nationals made the playoffs, they spent like an hour just showing afterwards them in the locker room doing interviews, you know, showering each other with booze, all sorts of stuff. And it was me and my dad probably had more fun watching that than a lot of the games. It was just this feeling of like, we've all been on this journey together. We earned it. And we could finally just like be happy, you know, you know, for once you have to worry, is this guy about to win, about to lose? And I think this show more than most shows in wrestling history with, with 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 his wife with just there's there's so many genuine like fond feelings you that are just radiating through the screen and then i can see a few stick in the mud saying that okay all the stuff when the house lights come on especially it's breaking character because oh all of a sudden punk is just a nice guy and all of a sudden everyone's hugging each other and backstage joe and you know joe should be mad he just lost the match and all that stuff and they're hugging and stuff you know what sometimes there are moments that are so cool and so real and so big it's worth forgetting about kayfabe for a second in the right context. And I think this show, like, I wouldn't change how they did this for the world. I, I you know, I love it all, every bit of it I described from, you know, punk high-fiving Gabe to the hugs, to the celebration, to everything. I think fans, especially Ring of Honor fans, can separate what was the storyline from what was reality. And to me, I think the moment punk, the, 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 the ref hit three and punk lost the title – in my opinion, the storyline is over at that point. Everything else that we see for this show and the next show is like a victory lap, and it's clearly out of storyline. And I think it's just some of the best. To me, this is just like some of my favorite Ring of Honor stuff, this celebration. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, I don't think it had the emotional effect on me the way it did on you, but I definitely agree that there was nothing wrong with it at all. Like, I think when you do work to shoot stuff, like, that's bad, you know? Like, when you're trying to, like, trick people and, like, sell something. But when you're just, like, letting a real moment play out because it's real and emotional, like, yeah, I don't know. How how could, I mean, you'd have to be pretty heartless bastard to be like, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. They should have kept up kayfabe. Like, come on. Like, no, this is it definitely made the whole thing better. 
And then Dave adds one last thing on the Observer. All the faces came out, as did Gibson's wife, who he brought in for the weekend to see him take the title, which I guess tells you, Matt, how much it meant to Gibson that he actually specially brought his wife in just so he could see her, she could see him do this. Gibson said this was the biggest win of his career. He said it was more important than wrestling at WrestleMania or winning the WWE Cruiserweight title. He said the Ring of Honor locker room is the best one he's ever been in and thanked Ring of Honor for giving him a shot to remake his name. Well, he's now screwed once he goes to WWE again. That's what Dave writes at the end. Um, so that is the end of the show. Matt. Was Dave and was Dave wrong about that? No, no. But I mean, that is one of the funny funny things is you know it, it's something that happened twice on the show where you got you know Matt Hardy going like you know I don't want to wrestle with these three hundred pound slugs like Gene Skitsky. Well, you just resigned with WWE, so guess what you're going to eventually be doing. And likewise, we got Gibson, and he's you know he's talking about how you know. Ring of Honor's, this is the best time of my career. You know, this means more than anything I've ever done. But we know he's going back to WWE. And I want to make clear, I don't blame either guy for going back to WWE. Clearly, I mean, the money is just so much different. And, and, and all and, go on. And for the record, the reason Matt Hardy brought up Gene Snitsky is because he had just wrestled him on TV. <laughs> yeah. So so I, I had forgotten that. So, yeah, I, I thought he was going to do it in the future. No, he already had. But the, the point is, like... All that's like I, I do not blame those guys at all for going back to WWE, but it is kind of weird that we have like two of the biggest names on the show. You know, they're kind of shitting on WWE or at least putting Ring of Honor above, but we know they're going back to that place. You know, so it is kind of a weird thing. But Matt, unfortunately, the unfortunately, show? that's the way the wrestling business works. You got to make your money. Yeah. Matt, what do you think about this show though overall? Um, I. I, you know, didn't like the first few matches all that much. But once you got to the six-man Generation Next Embassy tag, I think everything after that was pretty good. You know, the low-key match, you know, definitely had a lot of flaws. But I thought that the Homicide match was a lot of fun. Um, I thought that the main event, obviously, you know that I thought it was really great. And I thought the ending was very special. Um, so I think this is one of the better shows we've reviewed in a while, honestly. Uh, I think it's... Um, you know, probably the best, honestly, probably the best ROH show for me since um, probably the, that run-in that they had in May with um, Manhattan Mayhem and Final Showdown and Nowhere to Run. I think this is probably my favorite ROH show since then. See, uh, we have some disagreements because uh, I think this is one of the weaker shows of the year from a match quality standpoint. But oh, yeah, I, time- I strongly disagree with that. I, I I think there's three good matches. I do not think there's a great match. Like I, no, I I think like the average match on the show is is pretty good. Like like as usual with 2005 Ring of Honor, the floor is higher than it's ever been. But I feel like there's nothing here that's even close to great. I know I disagree on the main event, and I probably even though we both really like the uh, Gen Next tag, I probably liked it a little bit less than you. We're probably pretty close on the Matt Hardy match and the low key match. But all those matches, I would describe all of those matches as solidly like three and a half star good matches, you know, give or take. But, but at the same time, when I say that about match quality, this is not a show you watch for match quality. This is a show you watch because it's a great, it's an important moment. If you're like a big fan of Ring of Honor history, independent wrestling history, James Gibson or CM Punk, like this is a central viewing. And in terms of the moment, like you said, like they tell the moment and this story as well as they possibly could. Uh, we've gone over the details. They do it upright. And it, it's, it's a special show. But I think if you don't, if you, if for whatever reason you just are cold and dead inside and don't have the emotional connection to this promotion and these wrestlers, 
I think if you're just looking from a match quality standpoint, I don't think it's that great a show compared to a lot of the 2005 shows. Yeah, I, but I, 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 if you're looking at the show, I mean, you know, I mean, if you're looking at the show since May, I, 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 I definitely think you're wrong. Like, I think the match quality is is. I can't think of shows since May that where the match quality was was particularly higher than this. Honestly, like you know, even if you don't think that those matches are so great, like what show did have a bunch of great matches in June and see, July? I, I, okay, well, see, I know I liked, for example, I mean, this is always going to be the outlier, like Escape from New York. Uh, you know, I thought there's a great match there with 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 Colt Cabana and Nigel McGuinness, which uh, I want to again. I'll always make clear, no one else in the world makes clear of that. In fact, one of my followers on Twitter, Matt, to show you how people are razzing me over that, said to me the other day, "If you retweet this, I'll give Nigel McGuinness and Colt Cabana four stars." People are making fun of me for that, Matt. Now. <laughs> All so, right. Yeah, well, it, it's funny because even the people who love that show, which there are people who love Escape from New York, that's not typically the match that they cite. I know, but I'm saying to me, I can only go by my opinions, Matt. But I think we actually – we agree on more than we don't, but we just kind of uh, – you know, we come to different conclusions, which is why, Matt, we have a podcast. But, that's right. Um, that brings us to the end of the show. So if you want to get to know us on Twitter, at Trevor Dame at Mayor MGF through the years at gmail.com T-H-R-O-H. So if you've heard us reference a couple of our emailers that did a great job today. If you've had any interesting live thoughts or notes, you know, you could be on the, you could be mentioned on the show numerous times too. And I will usually get your name right. Only occasionally get it wrong. Uh, we have a thread on the pro wrestling only plugs forum. Again, don't forget we did a two hour show with Alan Cunahan on the pro wrestling torch. So if you have 10 bucks in your pocket, want to hear some more great wrestling podcasts and you are burning. If, if this is not enough, Matt and Trevor talking CM Punk for you, there is literally more out there for you that you could listen to right now. And, and that's that. So next time on the show, Matt, huge show, the end of the summer of the summer of punk. We are covering the show that CM Punk just went extensively into on a national TV show, AEW. We will talk about the night CM Punk broke down that he considered leaving wrestling. We will talk about the last major show CM Punk ever worked for Ring of Honor, although technically in a weird thing, it is not his last Ring of Honor show ever. We will talk about the night Punk wrestled Colt Cabana, his good former friend. We will talk about Matt Hardy getting booed even harder than he was tonight. We will talk about Punk, the final chapter. That will be the show we are covering next time. It all comes to an end next time on Through the Years. So until then, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.